Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. What makes the perfect crime? I would say that the perfect crime is a crime that goes undetected by everyone except the perpetrator. A crime where there are no investigators because investigators don't realize a crime has even taken place. Or at least one where investigators don't have enough evidence to convict whoever committed it. It remains unsolved forever, letting its perpetrators live out their lives as supposedly innocent people. The perfect crime to me doesn't mean a crime where the cops have bungled the investigation or a crime where luck or chance leads to the criminals getting off. It's a crime that criminals have designed to be so foolproof, so perfect, that the crime is literally unable to be solved. Real diabolical evil genius mastermind shit. And the perfect crime is what two young men from Chicago, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, thought they could of course pull off back in 1924. I mean, how could they not? They were geniuses. And they were, actually. Uh, They were also a long ways from being criminal masterminds. When authorities caught up to Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb for the killing of 14-year-old Bobby Franks, they were shocked by who they had found. These two killers were not hardened criminals or long rap sheet having ruffians. They were not men involved with the mafia or any other type of gang. In fact, they were barely men. Leopold and Loeb were just 19 and 18, really only men in a legal sense. The authorities had caught boys, boys with no arrest records, very wealthy, privileged boys who had grown up with just about every advantage that anyone could hope to have. Boys that had very, very bright futures ahead of them. Well, futures they they did have ahead of them before they'd thrown those futures away for a senseless killing. Both Leopold and Loeb had grown up in Kenwood, an exclusive, affluent Jewish neighborhood at the time on the south side of Chicago along the shore of Lake Michigan. Nathan Leopold was a brilliant student who had started studying for his bachelor's degree at the University of Chicago at the tender age of just 15. When authorities found them, Nathan was 19 and studying law. Leopold's partner in crime, Richard Loeb, was also the kind of boy destined for a bright future, or at least a cushy one. His father was the vice president of Sears, Roebuck & Company, a multimillionaire who afforded his four sons every advantage they could dream of. Like Nathan, Richard had graduated from high school as a young teenager, only 14. 
then graduated from the University of Michigan at only 17. I mean, these were two really smart kids, wealthy kids, kids from stable, two-parent-plus, lots-of-paid help-having homes, kids whose arrogance, partially fueled by their intelligence, had led them to recently do some really, really dumb shit. Before the murder, they'd been secretly committing a variety of crimes, escalating from arson to theft, then to murder, thinking that they'd never be caught due to their advanced intelligence. No dumb cops were ever going to catch these two masterminds. They were going to prove to themselves and society how smart they were by committing a murder that no one could possibly trace back to them. They were going to commit the perfect murder. During the winter of 1923 and 1924, the two spent long hours planning their dastardly deed. They came up with a murder plan they thought was foolproof. They would kidnap, kill, and then hide the body of an affluent child. Then they'd direct the victim's father to throw a packet containing a lot of ransom money from the train that traveled south of Chicago along the elevated tracks west to Lake Michigan. They would, of course, be waiting below in a car. And as soon as the ransom hit the ground, they would scoop it up, make their escape, and no one would ever have any idea what they had done to get their payday. So why would two rich kids ransom anyone for money they didn't need? It was genius. In theory, it actually wasn't a terrible plan. It was to throw off uh, investigators from looking at people like themselves. But in execution, it was idiotic. So how exactly did these two get caught? And is there really such a thing as the perfect crime? All of this and more in this week's 1920s Jazzamania. Society's going to hell in a handbasket. You must be a criminal, you lumpy-headed son of a bitch. Yet another trial of the century edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks, and happy Valentine's to all those hot, hard daddies, father daddies out there covered in olive oil or soy sauce, looking for love in all the wrong places. Happy Valentine's uh, to everyone else as well. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, a suck daddy, living, breathing, front, butt, dump. Known Chicken Joe associate, Yahawa 13 roadie, Sullivanian sex therapist, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praiseable jangles, and glory be to Triple M. A couple quick announcements, and then we're uh, off to the roaring 20s to cover the uh, heinous crime of two really smart, complete dipshits. Uh, if you haven't seen me yet on tour, the Burn It All Down tour is coming to Texas next to Tejas. Insert the sounds of whooping and yipping and yawn and gunfire here. I'll be in San Antonio Friday, February 24th, Dallas on Saturday, the 25th. Fuck yeah, bro. Then Seattle, Pontiac, Michigan, Indianapolis, almost sold out in Indy, New Orleans. Uh, I love to drive Lindsay crazy by pretending that you're supposed to say Nolens down there, which you're not. Uh, Philly, Cleveland, and Columbus coming up. And now let's get sexy. Right, Valentine's Day? Let's get sexy and talk about some sexy merch. Brand new, the best Italian restaurant chain in the world, Antonio Banderas. It's hot, hard, father daddy's Italian bistro and male strip club. A tea shelter featuring me, Antonio Banderas, completely drenched in olive oil. To see this creamy daddy body slurp into hot meatballs, call 1 900 Hot Daddy. Well, that's a spicy meatball. So that sounds great. And that's available at uh, Bad Magic, badmagicmerch.com. Uh, Charity-wise now, we will be uh, donating this month to Teach for America. So thank you to all of our uh, patrons for patrons. There we go. Uh, for allowing us to donate every month. 
going to be donating to a diverse network of leaders who work to confront the injustice of education inequity through teaching. Awesome group of meat sacks doing their best to make sure that poor kids, not just middle class and rich kids, also get a good crack to go into a good college and help, uh, you know, to help improve their futures. Not just the Leopolds and Loeb's of the world. You can learn more about Teach for America or get involved by going to teachforamerica.org. Donation amount TBD as I record this. Um, and one more cool thing uh, before murder. Speaking of teachers, the Cummins Family Scholarship Fund presented by Bad Magic is almost here. This year, we will award three $5,000 scholarships to three very deserving people in our community. All the details on how to apply will be in this episode description. To apply, just visit learnmore.scholarship, excuse me, starting over, learnmore.scholarsapply.org slash Cummins. And that's fucking wordy. And that's why we're writing that in the episode description. I'm gonna put a link in there. The application process opens March 6th, 2023. That is March 6th. Uh, more info in the episode description. Questions can be emailed to Cummins at scholarshipamerica.org. Doing all kinds of things. Hail Nimrod. Now back to the world of true crime. For the story of Leopold and Loeb. Uh, but a very different story than normal. No serial killer, just two teens who thought they could kill another teen. And then in doing so, uh, ended up in a in a trial. Well, sentencing hearing, but referred to as a trial. Talked about in America in 1924, about as much as O.J. Simpson's trial will be talked about in 1995. The case of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb will go down in history as something that just really, really should not have happened. Like all murders, save for ones in self-defense, of course, shouldn't happen. But in Double L's case, it was just such an obviously senseless crime. Just, just stupid stacked upon stupid. Uh, these two weren't acting on sadistic, sexualized urges. They didn't need the money. Uh, they weren't even killing somebody they felt had disrespected them. Someone des- they felt was deserving to die. They just carried out a murder as more of an almost intellectual exercise. Taking some poor kid's life and additionally tormenting his parents just to prove to themselves that they could do that. They could fuck with the world around them however they wanted and not suffer any consequences. They really wanted to celebrate each other's incredible cunning and intelligence. Just put on your glad rags, you egg, you butt man, you. We beat the fuzz and collected the cabbage just like I knew we would. Now let's dip the bill and celebrate our success. The first of many perfect crimes. There's a real sheep of a canary singing down on Plymouth tonight. It's time we head out and tip a few. Find some real dishes and see about slipping in between some gams. <laughs> Yeah, these fucking idiots, before their arrest, uh, they seem to have everything going for them. Even if they didn't choose to use their intellectual abilities to make high-profile careers for themselves, they still would have had a big old cushion of money and status to rest on for the rest of their lives, some trust funds and inheritance, inheritances to live out charmed lives with. Instead, they ended up you know, on a, on a sentencing trial for a brutal murder to determine if they would be executed or not. Because of its strangeness, the crime would be the inspiration for many fictional stories in the years that followed. Leopold and Loeb would be the inspiration for Alfred Hitchcock's Rope in 1948, Meyer Levin's best-selling 1956 novel Compulsion. A uh, movie would follow that. Um, more recently, themes from the case resurfaced in the 1992 film Swoon, 1997's Funny Games. The murder and trial even inspired a biographic musical Hamilton style in the 2005 off-Broadway Thrill Me, the Leopold and Loeb story. What was at the heart of this case and the stories the case spawned was a single question. Why did two young, well-educated boys from wealthy families kill for no apparent reason? Right, again, they didn't need money, wasn't a crime of passion or vengeance, but also wasn't entirely random. The killers meticulously premeditated and planned their act and considered other victims, including Loeb's younger brother, Tommy, 
After their arrest, the media came up with all kinds of utterly ludicrous possible answers as to why these two killed. Maybe my favorite part of the episode. Uh, started with the societal degradation of the Roaring Twenties. Fucking flapper girls and jazz. If that doesn't move a young fella to murder, what will? And a lot of people actually did blame the jazz life for what these two did. Mm-hmm. Can't you feel the evil? Ugh. You can just hear the subliminal messages. Watch out, kids, as you move your feet. You're bound to murder when you hear this beat. Everybody now do the Charleston, do the Charleston. Kick those legs around and kill everyone in town. Kill, kill, that's jazz, baby. Clarinet is spelled with the K. It's a killer, girly. I mean, didn't you feel it? Didn't you feel the evil there? Hell itself is probably a big old jazz lounge full of women wearing kind of but not really form-fitting dresses that only sometimes cover their knees. I see you, Lucifina. I see what you're doing. Get out of here. But seriously, fucking newspaper reporters actually attributed the murder to the jazz life, a generational rot that gave young men an appetite for gin, heavy petting, and if you follow their logic, homicide. Mm Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. First comes gin, right? Beelzebub's pine-needled murder elixir. Then comes heavy petting. You get your digit all wet in Satan's Lady Canyon. You bet your ass it's going to be fingering a trigger next. As the Chicago Daily News noted at the time, elite schools and fancy neighborhoods uh, were not immune from boys whose conduct, like their thinking, is independent of conventions and taboos. They scorn the judgment of other students glorying in their superior wealth, their sharper wits, their greater capacity for forbidden pleasures. Sounds like those kids might have even, uh, even been smoking dope. Reefer madness. Yeah, society was heading in a, in a different direction, as it usually does, and it was freaking people out, as it usually does. Uh, in the 1920s, women were uh, bobbing their hair, smoking cigarettes, drinking gin, Wearing kind of short skirts, but not short at all compared to today's skirts. Uh, sexuality was everywhere, kind of, not compared to today. Uh, but, you know, compared to the sexually boring-ass 1800s it was. And young people were eagerly taking advantage of their new hedonistic freedoms. Some thought that traditional ideals centered on work discipline and self-denial had been replaced by a culture of self-indulgence at speakeasies and late-night entertainment. And all of that, obviously, led to homicide. Or something. The sky is falling. Society is crumbling. No matter how good life is actually going, there is always the sky is falling crap. Always. Every fucking generation. There are hordes of dipshits outraged by the state of moral decay the world has fallen into. Sometimes the outrage, you know, is legitimate. Right? People uh, mad about, you know, plantation slavery. Yeah, that was a good thing. That was outrageous. But people outraged over gin and jazz? Shut the fuck up, grandma. Go back to playing your solitaire and shaking your head in disgust and glaring at everyone quietly. There was also a rise of postmodern literature following World War I that had a lot of people feeling uh, paranoid, not good about the future. Literature that didn't try to moralize, but sought to effectively portray the carnage of the global war and emphasized a pessimistic, lost outlook of the world. The unprecedented carnage and destruction of the war had stripped many members of a generation of their illusions about peace and prosperity. How could it not? Many expressed doubt and cynicism in their artistic endeavors, which I get. So many millions of people had senselessly died between the Spanish flu and World War I. So, I mean, a disease, so I guess that part's not senseless. An estimated 70 plus million people died between 1914 and 1919. 
Uh, And as education programs expanded and more and more Americans acquired secondary education, a good number decided to continue learning in degree programs at colleges and universities where they were exposed to some of these artistic, seemingly pessimistic philosophies. In the 1880s, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche began to speak of nihilism, where he saw what he saw as the disintegration of traditional morality in Western society. And now his works are being taught in American universities. Nihilism is defined in my little little dictionary app as the rejection of all religious and moral principles and the belief that life is meaningless. And if nothing fucking matters, well, then why not just kill some kid, you know, just to pass the time? Uh, That is not what Nietzsche meant, actually. We'll dive into his philosophical beliefs in a lot more depth later on. Uh, Some people thought that a general cultural malaise is what drove Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb to kill the evangelical preacher Billy Sunday. Passing through Chicago on his way to Indiana, warned that the killing could be traced to the moral miasma which contaminates some of our young intellectuals. It is now considered fashionable for higher education to scoff at God. Precocious brains, salacious books, infidel minds, all of these helped to produce this murder. Oh, yes! Nailed it! Fucking nailed it, Billy Sunday. Infidel minds. I've been saying that for years. Right? If you're an infidel, if you have a mind, well, then that mind is on murder. Right? Snoop Dogg said it best. With my mind on some murder and some murder on my mind. Or maybe he said with my mind on some money and my money on my mind. But Snoop was charged with murder in 1993. Acquitted. But he also smokes weed and has admitted to listening to jazz. So he probably has killed with that infidel brain of his. At least I think he's an infidel. Uh, He doesn't sound very religious based on lyrical content. But anyway, who the fuck was Billy Sunday? Sounds like a made up name. Uh, I wasn't. That was his birthday, actually. Uh, Before preaching, old Billy Sunday played Major League Baseball for eight seasons. And then he left baseball to become a preacher and a big-time prohibition guy, a big moralist. He was far from alone in thinking that an overall moral decay led to Leopold and Loeb killing. The Chicago Daily Journal actually attributed the murder to, quote, dementia jasmania. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Dementia jasmania. Listen to enough jazz, and it'll make you go fucking crazy. Let me give you a little taste of the exact kind of jazz that they were talking about. This next track is uh, Room Rent Blues, recorded in Chicago by King Oliver's Jazz Band, released in October of 1923, so just seven months before the murder of Bobby Franks. This is the evil shit, the dementia jazz mania that Leopold and Loeb had been hypnotized and corrupted by. Ugh. I won't play another second. It's too risky. I played that whole song. God knows how many of you are going to fucking snap. By next week, detectives around the rest of the world will be uh, working to solve a couple hundred thousand new murders. But how crazy is that? That they believe that that jazz. (laughs) That sounds like the most harmless, laid back, just fun time music to me. Uh, And the lifestyle around that jazz. Drinking gin. Fucking old people drink. I love gin, but it's not a fucking cool, like, oh, what a badass gin drinker. Smoking cigarettes, heavy petting, and dresses that didn't run down, uh, you know, to uh, the flapper girl's ankles. All of that combined would quite literally lead a young man to kill. Aside from dementia, jasmania, there were other equally insane explanations for why Leopold and Loeb killed. According to a random, quote, Jewish spokesperson, spokesman, spokesman, 
Uh, quoted in the Chicago Daily Tribune, some thought that the boy suffered from an erosion of Jewish values. The paper wrote that hundreds of thousands of rich Jews who don't know what to do with their money and who let their children grow up without any feeling of Jewish responsibilities is to blame. Was that a Jewish spokesman? Did they actually interview anyone? Or did that writer just make up some fucking stereotypical anti-Semitic shit? Uh, but also, would not having enough Jewish responsibilities lead anyone to kill? Right? You don't give your kid enough uh, fucking chores to do, and they're just going to murder people? Right? Yeah, that sounds right. You know? If you just give a, a kid a bunch of money and not enough response, they're just going to murder. What they're not going to do is uh, lay around and jerk off a whole bunch and eat a lot of snacks and not work or develop meaningful relationships. No, those trust fund motherfuckers are going to kill. Uh, and then there were the uh, phrenologists and those of a similar ilk. <laughs> These uh, pseudoscience nuts or something else. Phrenology is a now long discredited psychological theory or analytical method based on the belief that certain mental faculties and character traits uh, are indicated by configurations of the skull itself. You, know, you fill somebody's head, find out what kind of lumps they got. You can tell what they're up to. Phrenology was mostly discredited as a uh, fucking quackery back in the 1840s, but it was still brought up at the sentencing trial uh, or, you know, hearing of Leopold and Loeb. Uh, phrenologists literally just link bumps on people's heads to certain aspects of individual personality and character. <laughs> Phrenology heads or busts were used by phrenologists to perform school readings that would supposedly reveal information about a person's, you know, tendencies. Oh, oh my. Oh, 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 I'm afraid uh, to say, all right, you are destined to murder. L- look at this lump. Look at this lump right here by uh, the right here by the, the hair part. Due to its height and circumference, you will kill no less than five people. Arrest this man now before he acts upon his lumpy destiny. Other similar thinkers thought that uh, something else about the boy's physical appearance meant that they were destined for murder. They were just, uh, they were a little too hairy and their faces were a, a bit crooked and stuff. You know, one of, one of their eyelids uh, looked, eh, drooped a little so they couldn't help but kill someone. Uh, it wasn't really their fault, you know? I wish I was making this shit up. Uh, this kind of analysis was made popular from the writings of uh, Cesar Lombroso, born in 1835, died in 1909. Uh, Cesar was an Italian doctor. Sorry, you know, I get excited now when I hear someone's Italian. And that Lombroso motherfucker, uh, he even argued that being left-handed meant you were much more likely to commit criminal acts than if you were right-handed. That's what they're thinking this time. Uh, he promoted other kinds of activism. Activism uh, derives via French from the Latin word ativus, meaning ancestor. Uh, avus in Latin means grandfather. And it's believed that at is related to ada, a word for daddy. Oh, fuck yeah. Hot, hard father-daddy action again. So many daddies in this recent sucks. Makes my hot, hard father-daddy dick so hard. Uh, and ativism describes instances when an organism or person resembles a more distant ancestor, like a less developed human, perhaps, than its parents. Because Leopold and Loeb had certain features that clearly came from earlier, more primitive humans, looked a little chimpish, perhaps. They didn't. Uh, that meant they had the bloodthirstiness and lack of ethics to match, right? Those very well-educated fucking idiots were also primitive cave people types. Uh, this analysis would uh, make its way to uh, Leopold and Loeb's sentencing hearings. Dr. Harold S. Hobart told the court that his examination of Leopold's body and features had located considerable pathology. It didn't. This is not a thing. But they thought it was a thing. According to Dr. Hobart, the hair development is pronounced. His eyes are somewhat prominent. 
one eyelid is lower than the other. <laughs> His face is not the same on two sides, there being asymmetry. Everyone's face is asymmetrical. I don't care that this was a long time ago. How fucking dumb is this guy? Just look at 10 faces, motherfucker. And they're all going to be a little asymmetrical. Uh, And he thought this all meant that he had to go murder somebody. You know, you got a droopy eyelid. Well, killing's in your future. Tell us where the bodies are. Uh, The Chicago Tribune, following these types of absurd lines of reasoning, ran a sketch of the heads of Leopold and Loeb. Noted that uh, one or the other of them was marked by things such as a sensuous, uh, sensuous lips. Excessive vanity, love of excitement. How does that read physically? A lack of reason. I just picture lots of little like uh, arrows. Mm, Here, look at the forehead. Lack of reason. And then uh, absence of moral and benevolent power. Look at the jaw. All based, yeah, all based on physical features. Others, namely the psychologist hired by Leopold and Loeb's legal defense team, pointed to psychology to explain how the boys developed a lack of empathy and respect for human life that led to the murder. Okay, now we're making some sense at least. I mean, they did lack empathy. And they did lack a respect for human life. Uh, these psychologists provided the tabloids with more fodder, fodder when they uh, alleged that Leopold's childhood governess, an Alation woman, so French woman named, uh, nicknamed Sweetie, sexually abused a Leopold and his brother. Also said that Loeb had been manipulated by his super strict governess into becoming the type of immoral degenerate capable of murder. We'll talk about this more in the timeline. Others thought that the boys alleged homoerotic experiments with each other reflected deeper perversions. Right? I mean, you stick a dick in a mouth that is uh, part of a body attached to more dick and murder is bound to follow. I mean, they they did allude to that. Uh, The newspapers didn't cover any possible uh, homosexual acts committed between the two uh, as much, given that they were, quote, unsuitable for family consumption. Unlike a lot of murder details. Talking about murder in America, still, to this day, more socially acceptable than talking about dicks going in and out and in and out and in and out of man mouths and man butts. Uh, kids hearing about what, uh, you know, kids hearing about that, they, uh, you know, they might want to go fuck around with some dick someday. Hearing about murder, that's fine though. That might just lead to, you know, using the same logic, uh, more murder, which is obviously okay. What is not okay, uh, you know, are sexual uh, pleasurable acts where no one dies and the only hurt caused by them is due to irrational moral judgment of the inherently harmless acts. Uh, And then the most compelling explanation for why the boys decided to murder Bobby Franks came from Clarence Darrow, the killer's attorney. On the third day of his closing arguments, Darrow asked the judge to consider that wealth has its misfortunes. Leopold and Loeb, in his view, were victims of affluence. I want to be victimized by affluence. Uh, Given every advantage and opportunity, Darrow argued the boys suffered a kind of paranoid reaction to their own privilege. Darrow's argument would be the early version of the affluenza defense. Uh, Made famous again in the case of 20-year-old Ethan Couch who mowed down four people on a Texas road back in 2013. The old affluenza argument is not new. On June 15, 2013, if you don't remember, Couch lost control of his family's pickup truck after he and his friends had been playing some beer pong and drinking some beer they stole from Walmart. Veered into a crowd of people, you know, helping a driver whose car wasn't working on the side of the road. Uh, The crash killed the stranded motorist, a youth minister who stopped to help her, and a mother and daughter who came out of their nearby home to help. And Couch 16 at the time of the crash was found after the crash to have a blood alcohol level, three times legal limit for adult drivers. Like I said a few weeks ago, based on my own DUI from 2010, don't drink and drive. This idiot talking right now in the suck dungeon could have ended up doing something, uh, you know, just like that. Uh, Something much worse than ending up with uh, having a hard time getting into Canada. 
Thank God for Uber and other rideshare services now, less excuses than ever to drink and drive. And anyway, psychologists who evaluated couch in 2013 introduced the affluenza right term at trial in reference to couch being coddled by his wealthy parents. He testified the couch learned, uh, you know, nothing from his first run-ins with the law. Psychologist said his parents covered for him and taught him a system that's 180 degrees from rational. If you hurt someone, say you're sorry. And that family, if you hurt someone, send some money, which I do get, you know, I uh, do think that probably messed that kid up. But also, you fucking kill somebody, I don't think you get to blame being a spoiled kid uh, and not get in trouble. Uh, back to Leopold and Loeb, uh, did wealth and a possible lack of accountability make them kill Bobby Franks? Make them? No. But being privileged and receiving the advantages of wealth, I do think went a long way to them feeling like they were above the law, like they could get away with murder. Wealth was certainly part of the reason why the case became so big in the media. Newspaper readers saw that wealth wasn't a guarantee for Bobby Franks and for the Franks family that they would live secure, happy lives because their victim also, you know, comes uh, was was wealthy for the Le- for Leopold and Loeb for their families. Wealth did not guarantee respectability for the killers themselves. Wealth apparently couldn't uh, you know buy the thrills they wanted as far as not being punished for those thrills. While affluence may uh, you know play a role in why the boys or may have played a role in why the boys thought they could get away with something, the real primary reason that Leopold and Loeb killed Bobby Franks was very simple: they killed him because they wanted to. Okay, let's talk structure. To further cover the story of Leopold and Loeb, first going to look at the idea of a perfect crime, which these two dirtbag young men thought they'd come up with uh, when they hatched their idea to murder a young boy and collect ransom. Then we'll take a deeper look into uh, who Leopold and Loeb were in today's timeline, culminating with their horrific acts and subsequent investigation and sentencing hearing. Uh, And then what happened to them after their uh, convictions? What is the perfect crime? Well, there's not just one. A perfect crime uh, can be anything already considered a crime like theft, arson, murder, or saying fuck in public in Dubai, where investigators can't determine who the perpetrator was. And you can seriously go to jail for up to a year in Dubai for saying fuck one time in public or be deported. What a wonderfully free place the UAE is. Such a strange place. So modern in some ways, so backwards in others. Uh, Anyway, in other perfect crime cases, the investigators can identify the perpetrator, but because of legal loopholes or other circumstances, they can't get a conviction. Hollywood is especially obsessed with these kinds of perfect crimes. The 1999 Tommy Lee Jones and Ashley Judd film Double Jeopardy. Maybe the best example of this in which a woman is falsely convicted of killing her husband and is then told that if she now goes and hunts him down and kills him, she can't be charged again, which is, of course, in reality, complete nonsense. Every court in the world would consider this two murders, which should be innocent of the first one, but absolutely guilty of the second. In reality, the perfect crime can be pretty simple, right? The perfect crime can be a murder committed by somebody who had never before met his victim or her victim, has no criminal record, steals nothing, tells no one, leaves no forensic evidence behind, which we've learned from so many true crimes sucks is almost impossible now. A man recently charged with the murder of four students here in Idaho back on November 13th, 90 minutes from the Suck Dungeon at the University of Idaho, criminology student Brian Koberger, if found guilty, he'll be learning that forensic evidence makes a perfect murder very hard to commit nowadays. Another possible perfect crime is a crime committed in an area of high public traffic where DNA from a wide variety of people is present, making finding evidence that would point to any one perpetrator, you know, like finding a needle in a haystack. True perfect crimes, I think, like I said at the very beginning of the episode, are ones we never hear about. Once we know about a crime, it's no longer perfect. 
We can only know about hypotheticals and close calls, crimes that were maybe almost perfect. Let's look at some interesting close calls now. In March of 2009, a 6.8 million jewel theft in Germany was described as being close to the perfect crime, like very close. Three masked glove thieves were caught on surveillance cameras sliding down ropes from the store's skylights, outsmarting its sophisticated security system and not setting off alarms until after, you know, they had left the area. Uh, That night they got away, but they did leave some evidence behind, some DNA found in a single drop of sweat on a latex glove discarded next to a rope ladder used to reach the ground floor. A drop of sweat was all it took. Police ran the material through the German criminal database and got a hit. Actually got two hits. The computer identified 27-year-old identical twins, Hassan and Abbas. Under German law, they can't be identified by their first and last names. Uh, Despite having this DNA evidence, the police were unable to bring the case to court since the DNA belonged to one of a pair of identical twins, but they couldn't determine which one. And because both of the twins denied committing the crime and they didn't have any other evidence, the courts did not feel it could truly prove which of the two was the criminal. On March 18th, 2009, before the case went to trial, the twins were released. And since the statute of limitations for burglary in Germany is 10 years and no other evidence has been found, the twins will now never be convicted for a crime that at least one of them committed. Maybe both of them. There were three thieves that night. Something similar would happen uh, to two Malaysian men, also in 2009, who escaped hanging for drug trafficking because they were twin brothers and the courts could not distinguish between the guilty brother and the innocent brother. I had never thought about how, uh, how having an identical twin would be very helpful when it comes to committing the perfect crime. Uh, this next crime may have actually been perfect as far as crimes we know go about, so close to perfect. If I, if I had heard about this one before, I, f- I forgot about it. And I'm always trying to find good jewel heist story uh, or art heist, heist story, stories in general. Excuse me, my God. Uh, some guys pulled off a very successful art heist using some good old fashioned disguises. The heist, which took place in Boston, would go down as one of the most flawless art heists of all time. This is, I mean, criminally impressive. March 18th, 1990, the day after St. Patrick's Day, some police officers, quote unquote, arrived at the door of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, claiming to have received a call about a disturbance. And they looked, you know, like legit police officers, so much so that the security guard uh, who answered the door, let them in. And then one of the police officers uh, convinced this poor bastard that there was a warrant for this guard's arrest and got him to step away from his post to sort out why they thought there was a warrant for him. And then the police officer, the police officers, of course, were, you know, really criminals in disguise. They quickly handcuffed the guard, ordered him to call the other guard to the front. And then that guard also handcuffed. And then the thieves, you know, made off with 13 paintings, including masterworks by Rembrandt, Vermeer, Degas, worth roughly at the time they took them a third of a billion dollars to this day no one has been arrested in conjunction with this crime nor have the paintings ever been recovered the stolen works are now valued at half a billion but i was thinking how do you sell them now uh the robbery was the largest art theft in american history the fbi thinks the mob did it but can't prove shit uh museum is currently offering a 10 million dollar reward still for the return of these paintings uh, statute of limitations is passed here as well. So, you know, now even if these guys confessed, can't be prosecuted. Uh, I wonder where these paintings are right now, right? Hanging up on some wall in strong Russian pony boy Putin's bedroom or something. Displayed in some Russian oligarch's private gallery. Like, would some oligarch, you know, pay close to full value for something known to be stolen that's going to be hard to resell? Uh, these crimes, of course, are robberies. Leopold and Loeb would go down in history as the men who thought that they could commit the perfect murder. So let's look briefly at some other murders you might say were perfect in the sense that whoever committed them got away with it. 
A lot of the most enduring unsolved murders qualify as perfect crimes to many, like the like the murders of Jack the Ripper, uh, the Zodiac Killer. A lot of other serial killers thought they were getting away with perfect murders and did for quite some time, but eventually it all came crashing down. Joseph D'Angelo, a.k.a. the East Area Rapist, a.k.a. the Vesalia Ransacker, a.k.a. the original Night Stalker, a.k.a. the Golden State Killer and subject of Suck 90, almost got away with a whole bunch of crimes, did get away with them for 44 years. He's believed to have raped at least 51 women, robbed over 120 homes, and killed at least 13 people, all between 1974 and 1986, but wasn't caught until 2018. You know, committed his crime, uh, you know, had he committed his crimes back in the days of Leopold and Loeb, probably would have never been caught. No one ever got a real good look at his face who lived to talk about it. He wore gloves so police didn't have fingerprints. He would call from phone booths or stay on the line for only a short time so no one could trace his location. Didn't leave any evidence useful at the time he was committing these crimes to detectives, but left a lot of evidence that would be very useful later. He left his DNA everywhere which was what led to police finally catching up with him when D'Angelo's familial DNA popped up on a genealogy website. Technically, like DNA analysis, uh, sorry, technology, like DNA analysis, has made the perfect crime less and less likely to happen now. You could get away with being a lot sloppier back in the 1920s and still not get caught than you can now. And Leopold and Loeb, despite actually being very, very academically intelligent and living back in the 1920s, they still got caught. Despite how much harder it is to get away with murder now, perfect murders are still undoubtedly being constantly committed. There are currently over 200,000 unsolved murder cases in just the U.S., and that number increases by between 6 and 10,000 each and every year. And these unsolved murders do not count all the murders, uh, you know, murders investigators don't even think are murders. Like if everyone, the police, the medical examiner, relatives, etc., believe the victim died of natural causes or in a tragic accident, then there's no murder to be investigated. So by definition, we will never know when the perfect crime has been committed because we will never know it's, it's occurred in the first place. And there might be a lot of perfect murders being committed. There were over 126,000 deaths in just 2010 alone in the U.S. that were the result of, quote, accidental injury. If 1% of them were murders that were never recognized as such, that would be 1,264 murders. An Australian woman would uh, almost get away with this kind of perfect crime. Yvonne Gladys Fletcher was convicted in 1952 of poisoning not one, but two of her husbands with thallium. Thallium is an odorless, tasteless chemical, and when absorbed by the body, it evidently uh, results in symptoms that look a lot like dying from natural causes, making it a popular choice for poisoners. At the time, due to the chronic rat infestation problems in certain overcrowded, overcrowded parts of Sydney and elsewhere in Australia, and thallium's effectiveness as rat poison... It was readily available over the counter in New South Wales where thallium sulfate was marketed as a commercial rat bait under the brand name Thalrat. Uh, Yvonne was uh, only caught because her neighbors noticed that her second husband seemed to be suffering the exact same kind of strange and terrible lethal illness in 1952 that Yvonne's first husband had suffered from in 1948. She was convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, and then her sentence sub- subsequently commuted to life imprisonment after the uh, New South Wales government abolished the death penalty then, actually released in 1964 at the age of only 42, remarried and had a quiet life. Wonder if her third husband knew who the fuck he was marrying. Uh, Yvonne did not get away with poisoning the second time around, uh, you know, but uh, she got away, would have gotten away the first time if she never would have uh, tried it again. It would have been just an accidental death. And who else may be getting away with poisoning people right now? Citing 2022 governmental stats here in the U.S., an average of 240 people die as a result of unintentional poisoning uh, every single day. 
That includes drug overdoses, but uh, wouldn't intentionally overdosing someone also be a perfect murder? And how many times has that happened? Okay, Yvonne got away with, uh, you know, killing once. One perfect crime would not be so for Leopold and Loeb. The two of them would not only get caught and pretty quickly, they also never got the ransom they tried to claim. The parents of their victims were going to give them ransom money, but they fucked that exchange up. They fucked up so much. Killing Bobby Franks was so far from the perfect crime. Uh, Leopold and Loeb made about a gazillion mistakes. Just to demonstrate how far from perfect their attempt was before we get into the timeline and cover more details. Some notable mistakes were leaving the body right by some railroad tracks where it was very quickly discovered by a random passerby. Uh, And then they were seen together in the rental car at the time and place the kidnapping had occurred. A rental car they left bloodstains in. Uh, They left a pair of eyeglasses at the crime scene belonging to one of them with an unusual hinge mechanism that had only been bought by three people in the Chicago area. They also claimed as an alibi that they had been out in their car the night of the murder, even though their uh, chauffeur was repairing that exact same car that exact same night. So it couldn't have been used. Didn't put a lot of thought in their fucking alibi. And then one of them even uh, tried cracking a joke during questioning about uh, if he were to murder someone, it would for sure be some self-important little twat like Bobby Franks. Not good, motherfucker. Yeah, told a journalist that. Not good. Wrong crowd for that joke. Criminal masterminds. These guys were not. And there were other mistakes. And their botched crime would captivate the national media. What was shocking and intriguing about Frank's murder, of course, was, you know, who killed him, as we've talked about. Two young University of Chicago students named Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. And again, by all accounts, you know, they should have had, uh, you know, full lives uh, as upstanding members of society and accomplished men. Like we said, Nathan Leopold, brilliant student, enrolled at University of Chicago at the age of 15, earned distinction as an amateur ornithologist as well, a bird scientist, publishing uh, two papers in The Auk, the leading ornithological journal in the U.S. Fucking bird watchers, got to keep an eye on them, almost as bad as jazz lovers. Leopold's family, wealthy, well-connected, his father, an astute businessman who had inherited a shipping company, then used that to make a second fortune in aluminum can and paper box manufacturing. After getting his undergraduate degree, Nathan went on to study law at the University of Chicago, poised to accomplish so much. Had he not been a shithead, Richard Loeb, 18 at the time of the murder, also came from a wealthy family. As I said, his dad, vice president of Sears, a guy who possessed an estimated fortune of $10 million, equal to about $170 million today. Loeb's were fucking loaded. Third son in a family of four boys. Loeb had distinguished himself early, graduating from University High School at just 14, enrolling that same year at the University of Chicago. His experience as a student at that university was uh, not a happy one. His classmates were several years older and he earned only mediocre grades, but of course he did. He's 14. At the end of his sophomore year, he transferred to the University of Michigan, remained a lackluster student, but again, a very young one who spent more time playing cards and reading dime novels than sitting in the classroom, maybe became a young alcoholic during his years in Ann Arbor. Nevertheless, uh, he managed to graduate from Michigan and in 1924 was back in Chicago taking graduate courses in history at the university. These two were smart academically. Of the two, Leopold was the smartest with an IQ reportedly so far above the regular scale they were used at the time that it was impossible to attach a precise figure to it. Investigators estimated that he scored between 210 and 220. And if that is true, I'm not sure it is only because that is preposterously high. That would make him possibly smarter than the smartest man in the world right now, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. South Korean professor Kim Jong-young. This guy was solving differential equations live on Korean television when he was five years old. He was knocking out calculus problems when he was three, three years old. I don't know if Leopold was that smart, 
but the fact that some speculated he was shows how smart he may have been. He was a genius of some kind, just not a criminal genius. And Loeb, no slouch either, tested to have an IQ of 160. There's different IQ scales out there. Some have 140 as the bottom benchmark for genius. Others have the barometer at 160. Again, both so smart, both so privileged. And that's why their crime, so shocking. Why them? Right Beneath both of these boys' well-bred exteriors was a darker, more perverse interior, fueled by arrogance and superiority. When the two uh, re-met after, you know, they were acquainted with each other growing up in 1923, like Fred and Rose West, their combination of uh, their particular personalities and the fact that their relationship did become romantic, like a, like a spark, right, that set the fire, that led to an explosive murder. On the surface, the boys seemed to have little in common. Loeb was gregarious and extroverted. Leopold was misanthropic and aloof, yet they became intimate companions. The more Nathan Leopold learned about Richard Loeb, the stronger his attraction for the other boy was. Loeb was considered very good-looking, slender, well-built, tall, brown-blonde hair, humorous eyes, and a sudden attractive smile, had an easy, open charm about him. Later, Leopold would describe Loeb like this. His charm was magnetic. Maybe mesmeric is the better word. See, he was a fucking smart guy. Who who says someone's mesmeric? Uh, He could charm anybody he had a mind to. He seemed to have an inborn knack of making friends, of winning everyone's affection. With his rose-colored glasses on, it didn't matter to Nathan Leopold that Richard Loeb would often indulge in purposeless, destructive behavior. Stealing cars, setting fires, smashing storefront windows. Now, in fact, Nathan liked it. Nathan Leopold himself could be very annoying, which cost him some friendships, but Loeb didn't seem to mind. He liked having someone else smart worshiping him. Leopold had an irritating habit of bragging about his supposed accomplishments. It quickly became tiresome to listen to him, uh, you know, boast about, you know, speaking 15 languages, for example, which wasn't true. But again, he worshipped Loeb and Loeb loved that. Leopold uh, also had a tedious obsession with the philosophy of Friedrich Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, He would talk endlessly about uh, Nietzsche's idea of a mythical Superman who, because he was a Superman, stood outside the law beyond any moral code that might constrain the actions of ordinary men. Even murder, Leopold claimed, was an acceptable act for a superman to commit if the deed gave him pleasure. Morality did not apply in such a case. Uh, Loeb didn't care as much about Nietzsche, but he liked hearing about how he should be above the law because of how intelligent and gifted he was. Having a companion made Richard feel, uh, who made Richard feel like a criminal mastermind, that's what he really liked. These days, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb might seem like cliché figures. Intellectual nihilistic remorseless killers who want to bring society to its knees. Sociopaths. Real world precursors of Patrick Bateman from American Psycho or Tyler Durden from Fight Club. But that character wasn't a common media archetype back in the 1920s. Could be argued that Leopold and Loeb created the mold for that archetype when it comes to American media, film, TV series, fictional novels and such. They would tell investigators that the idea to kill Bobby came from the pure love of excitement, a love of thrills and doing something different. All right, enough dancing around this story now. Let's get into all the devilish details in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. 
Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my better help therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. 
And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And now it's time for another Crime of the Century timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On November 19th, 1904, Nathan Freudenthal, Nate Dog Leopold Jr. was born in Chicago. Son of Florence and Nathan Leopold, the Leopolds were a wealthy German-Jewish immigrant family. A child prodigy, Nathan will claim uh, to have spoken his first words at the age of just four months. And then he'd go on to get an undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago with Phi Beta Kappa honors and would also get some national recognition for being a fucking nerd. I mean, ornithologist. Leopold and several other ornithologists identified the Kirtland's warbler and made astute observations about the parasitic nesting behavior of brown-headed cowbirds, which threatened the warblers. Uh, Leopold was set to travel around Europe just a few weeks after he killed a 14-year-old boy and a few months later would have been going to Harvard Law School. We don't have a lot of day-to-day details of this uh, bird-loving murderer's childhood, so let's pivot now to Richard Loeb. Richard Albert Dick Loeb, born on June 11th, 1905 in Chicago to the family of Anna Henrietta and Albert Henry Loeb, a wealthy lawyer and retired vice president of Sears, Roebuck & Company. Dick Loeb's father was Jewish and his mother was Catholic. Nate Dog and Dick Loeb. They were never called that in life, to my knowledge. But I will, them, I will call them that uh, from time to time today. Also, when I say Dick Loeb, makes me think of an earlobe, right? But one on a penis, which is kind of gross to imagine. But I take comfort knowing that you are also now probably imagining like an like a earlobe of some sort hanging off a dick of some sort, maybe with a gauge in it, some kind of earring. And it feels good not to be alone. Like Leopold, uh, Richard, who was sometimes called Dicky or Dick, uh, nice to have a lot of dick in this suck. Uh, Loeb was exceptionally intelligent, as I stated, with the encouragement of his governess, as a, uh, aka a private teacher. More on claims of uh, you know what went on with the governesses uh, and these boys later. Uh, he skipped sef- several grades in school and went on to become the University of Michigan's youngest graduate at the age of only 17. Loeb was especially fond of history, was doing graduate work in the subject at the University of Chicago at the time of the murder. Unlike Nate Dogg, uh, however, as smart as he was, Dick Loeb was not overly interested in intellectual pursuits, preferring to socialize, play tennis, read pulp detective crime novels, and raise hell. Uh, the two young men grew up with their uh, respective families in the affluent Kentwood neighborhood in Chicago's South Side. They were pretty close neighbors all their lives, in addition to owning a summer estate now called Castle Farms in Charlevoix, Michigan, the Loeb's owned a mansion in Kenwood, just two blocks from the Leopold home. I think I put a T in it earlier. Kenwood. Uh, Castle, Castle Farms, the old Loeb summer home, is a place that now has its own dedicated Wikipedia page. This is quite some place. A very popular wedding venue. Used to be a rock concert venue. Metallica, Aerosmith, ACDC have played there. 45 acres on the shores of Lake Charlevoix. No idea how much this property is worth now, but I bet it could sell for somewhere between 50 and $100 million. And that, and that was the Loeb summer home. Though Leopold and Loeb knew each other casually while growing up in the neighborhood, they didn't really begin to become friends until, you know, mid-1920. And uh, their relationship quickly would then flourish at the University of Chicago. Really, in 1923, they became very close. Uh, They discovered a mutual interest in true crime. Leopold, uh, also very interested in Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of Superman, or Ubermensch in German. 
I've teased this a little bit now. Let's explore this concept in a little more detail since it really seemed to help push these guys to kill. The concept of the Ubermensch is explained in Nietzsche's work of philosophical fiction, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. The protagonist, Zarathustra, spends 10 years of solitude in the mountains and then returns to the nearest town, excited to share his wisdom about the Ubermensch. Zarathustra preaches that humans are merely a bridge between animal and Ubermensch, saying, To become the Ubermensch, one must transcend the established morals and prejudices of human society to define their own purpose and values in life. In the novel, most of the townspeople ignore Zarathustra, leaving him feeling dismayed and disillusioned. He's fucking bummed out that most humans are becoming content with mediocrity, simple pleasures, avoiding anything extreme. Why won't they push themselves towards becoming an Ubermensch? True self-actualization, a, a step beyond self-actualization even. Zarathustra asserts that one must undergo three metamorphoses before they can become the Ubermensch. The first stage is becoming the camel. The camel is not afraid of discomfort. The camel possesses the discipline to obtain new knowledge, but still bears the burden of obedience to existing social constructs. Right? The second stage is evolving from the camel to the motherfucking lion. The lion does follow the subjective societal rules placed before him by, uh, or does not follow the subjective rules, excuse me, placed before him by mere sheep, by camels. The lion revels in his independence by fiercely rebelling against social constructs, the, the ones he previously carried as a camel. And then the third stage of these metamorphoses is becoming the child. That's right. First camel, then lion, then a little kid. It'll make sense. The child seeks truth on their own without external influences controlling them. Whereas the camel only knew following society's rules and the lion only knew rebelling against society's rules, the child is able to make creative discoveries and develop their own rules for life, right? Carpe diem, motherfucker. And I'll decide how best to seize the day as well. Thank you very much. Zarathustra, not a fucking word you say every day, uh, believed by undergoing these three metamorphoses, us lowly average meat sack schmucks could learn to truly live life on our own terms instead of succumbing to society's expectations. Like as a modern example, the camel and us might question the value of higher education, but pursue college regardless because we've been told that's what we're supposed to do. Meanwhile, the lion might reject the value of higher education for the purpose of going against the grain of what we're supposed to do and maybe jumping into some form of entrepreneurship. Finally, the child would determine the value of higher education for themselves without considering the opinions of society around them. If higher education fit into the child's life plan, then they would pursue it regardless of what their parents, friends, and the rest of society felt about that decision. And if higher education did not fit into the child's life plan, they would forego college regardless of what those around them thought. The child lives life on their own terms, does not mindlessly follow the footsteps of those before them, also does not mindlessly rebel against the footsteps for the sake of mere rebellion. They do what makes the most sense. Hail Nimrod and Hail Zafina, there is a lot about this I like. And by embracing the inquisitive nature of the child, Zarathustra felt, so of course, you know, Nietzsche felt, we can discover what is truly meaningful to us rather than have others give us meaning, tell us what is meaningful. And through the child, one can become an ubermensch, a superhuman, but not in some comic book superhero sense. Just a human who's evolved above the typical trappings and limitations intellectually of us average meat sacks. Right, a human who does not accept without analysis any morality, modality handed down by a government, religion, culture, etc., Right To thy own self be true, to quote Shakespeare's uh, Hamlet, uh, quote from 
Shakespeare's Hamlet, at least. Uh, one of these things uh, Nietzsche also emphasized in his philosophical musings was the importance of friends in one's moral evolution. Nietzsche felt that friends should not only share joy, but also challenge one another. Zarathustra uh, believed that the purpose of this relationship is to foster cooperative competition that leads friends closer to becoming the Ubermensch. Friends challenging each other's viewpoints leads to more self-examination, a better understanding of one's beliefs. Through spirited discourse, friends can continue to evolve each other's knowledge and morality. And if you have the right friends, intelligent, challenging friends, not, you know, uh, just mindlessly accepting the status quo, they can push you to a much more evolved, authentic, examined life where you construct and embrace your own custom morality, a morality that is above any local laws passed down by the government that counts on its citizens to be camels, a morality above any created by a religion that counts on its followers to be, you know, sheep, camels, not lions. Uh, ultimately, a shared desire for enlightenment between, say, two curious friends can push both to transcend the morality created by inferior camels, by other humans intellectually, morally beneath them. To quote Bill Murray, the great Bill Murray from Kingpin, I can do anything. I w- I, if I want, I'll walk. Finally, big earners above the law. Leopold and Loeb would interpret all this as seeing the Ubermensch as someone who would be like Big Earn above the law, someone who wants to just do shady shit and thus, you know, uh, feel that they could be as destructive and lawless as they wanted to be. But that is not what Nietzsche intended. He thought that the ideal Ubermensch would be a, quote, Caesar with Christ's soul. Someone who isn't going to just accept the laws of the land and the social mores of the culture and morals uh, of religion as always being right someone willing to re-examine everything and decide what's right for themselves, but pragmatically what's right for themselves would also be right for society overall as far as people's well-being. That was what Nietzsche was trying to get us to to find some new meaning as opposed to the old meaning handed down to us by uh, outdated, you know, governmental laws and religion. Leopold and Loeb would take Nietzsche's Ubermensch concept, misinterpret it as something a lot fucking darker, Uh, They particularly, Nathan Leopold, thought that supermen possessed superior abilities and intellects which allowed them to rise above laws that bound unimportant average masses, right? Allowed them to do things like kill a random teenager just to see how it felt and then not feel bad about it because they're creating their own morality, right? He believed that uh, he and Loeb were these individuals. In a letter to Loeb, he once wrote, a superman is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. Ah, spoiler alert. Court would find both of these dipshits pretty fucking liable. Uh, seems all, also like many others, like that these two uh, asshats misinterpreted the uh, spirit of uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche's overall nihilism, right? That word is defined as the rejection of all religious and moral principles and the belief that life is meaningless. But Nietzsche, son of a Lutheran pastor, a man who famously declared God is dead, did not believe that life had no meaning. So you can just go fucking rape, kill, do whatever shit you want, regardless of how hurtful it might be. He held a worldview that promotes human flourishing by remaining faithful to the here and now and to this earth instead of manufactured and often harmful and oppressive notions of God and law. Right? But he still was, you know, encouraging uh, people who really uh, understand his philosophy to to find meaning and not just be terrible. But Nate Dog and Dick Loeb, uh, they didn't see that in the writings. They just saw, oh, fuck yeah, bro. God doesn't exist. Laws or social constructs created by stupid fucking camel folk. We're intellectually superior supermen. Ubermenches not beholden to anyone but ourselves. Let's fucking go. Leopold and Loeb decided to test their little theory about being supermen by initially committing, uh, committing some acts of petty theft and vandalism. They broke into a frat house, University of Michigan, stole some pen knives, a camera, a typewriter. 
stole a typewriter they would later use to write their ransom notes. For the robbery, they wore masks and carried two loaded revolvers and a rope to tie anyone up who interrupted them. Not getting caught, reaffirmed their belief that they were superior humans who could easily avoid capture by outwitting the stupid camels who surrounded them. Emboldened, now they upped the ante, right? Escalated to arson. What exactly they burned? Is it made clear in sources? Uh, Best source I could find said that they set several random fires. None that resulted in any loss of life. Uh, Loeb, you know, did some joy rides and some cars. They committed acts of vandalism, such as sneaking out in the middle of the night, smashing in some storefront windows and uh, Kentwood and Hyde Park. And I apologize in my notes. I don't know if it's an autocorrect thing, but, but I wrote Kentwood and Kenwood both. So it's definitely one of those, that neighborhood. And now I can't remember which one. Uh, when the media didn't cover any of these crimes, Leopold and Loeb were disappointed. They wanted to do something more people noticed. They wanted to toy with uh, the public. Have those camels fear them, be recognized, even if uh, recognized anonymously for being ubermenches, masterminds. So they started planning a crime that the media would have no choice but to cover. A sensational crime, a perfect crime, a perfect murder. In the fall and winter of 1923-1924, these two spent seven months planning their murder. They planned everything from the method of abduction to the disposal of the body. To confuse investigators as to the perpetrator's motives, they decided to make a ransom demand. is what they would ask for, about $85,000 in today's money. To make the ransom demand, they planned an intricate sense of complicated instructions to be delivered to the family one step at a time to payphones, or, you know, via payphones. Then they would type the final set of instructions involving the actual money drop in the form of a ransom note using the typewriter stolen from the fraternity house. For the murder weapon, they chose a chisel. Uh, Then they began to search for the right victim. After a couple of false starts, including the consideration of Richard Loeb's own brother, Tommy, they picked Armand Deutsch, an 11-year-old boy and grandson of Julius Rosenbald, the president of Sears, probably the richest man in Chicago. On April 20th, 1924, Leopold visited a rental car shop in downtown Chicago. The plan is now set in motion, the very beginning. He pretends to be a traveling salesman by the name of Morton D. Ballot. He's able to provide a bank book with the same name for some ID verification. He was able to get that bank book earlier that same morning by depositing $100 to open an account and just telling the banker that he was Morton D. Ballard. It was that easy back in 1924. Getting the rental car would be uh, a bit trickier. Dick Loeb was asked to provide three references, said he was uh, only in the city for a brief time, could just provide one reference, Mr. Lewis Mason. Mason was Nathan Leopold, who was waiting by a drugstore payphone to take the rental car company's call as Mr. Mason. And he gave a good enough reference for the rental car store clerk to rent him a vehicle, rent, uh, you know, Loeb a vehicle. Making sure I'm getting, oh yeah, rent uh, uh, Leopold a vehicle, excuse me. So I guess it wasn't actually much trickier. It was really easy. I mean, these guys didn't even need fake IDs for this shit. Illinois would not have driver's licenses until 1939. And the U.S. did not start issuing social security cards until 1936. Businesses didn't really start asking for, uh, you know, much proof, paper proof, visual proof of identity until after World War II. So much easier to get away with shit back then. So much easier to pull scams. But these uh, two geniuses will still be caught quickly. Uh, after grabbing that rental car, Loeb uh, checks into a hotel. The Morrison, also under the name Morton D. Ballad, wanted to uh, establish a paper trail of some uh, mysterious Mr. Ballad figure that would send the police on a wild goose chase if they came looking. When he arrived at the hotel, there was a mail waiting for Mr. Ballard, sent previously by Leopold and Loeb. The pair now drove the car around for a few hours, then returned it. Now they've established some local business with a local rental car company. Uh, You know, they're in their files as a customer who returns the car damage-free, all part of their master plan, make it easier to get the next rental car. 
Jump, you know, they're just making sure that they could. Jumping ahead a month now, the day before the murder, May 20th, the pair drive Leopold's red sports car to a local hardware store and buy some rope. Then they drive it to another hardware store, buy a chisel. Rope to tie up the victim, a chisel to kill them with. And that's a random fucking weapon. Feels like they overthought their weapon choice. And how will we kill this meaningless camel, Nathan? Should we shoot them? Nah, too noisy. Strangle them. Too barbaric. Beneath us. Stab them. Ah, too cliche. We're different. We're ubermenches. We make it up as we go along. Let's use a a, a waffle iron. A, a top hat. A pair of seal uh, skin slippers. A chisel. Okay, yes, chisel. Like, like a sculptor making something new out of something that already exists. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, then they head to a third drugstore, buy some hydrochloric acid to disfigure the remains with. No shortage of drugstores around there. Uh, then they go back to Leopold's to further prepare. Loeb wraps some tape around the sharp end of the chisel to create a kind of club. Even weirder now. Not just a chisel, a needlessly modified chisel. Why not just fucking buy a club or buy a hammer? Uh, also ripped up pieces of fabric to make a gag. And then Leopold types up a ransom note. Dear sir, you no doubt know by this time that your son has been kidnapped. Please follow our instructions carefully and nothing will happen to him. If you don't follow our instructions to the letter, you will never see your son again. Number one, do not communicate with the police. If you have done so already, please do not mention this letter. Number two, go down to the bank and get $10,000 in old bills. Make sure the bills are old. Any new or marked bills will be noticed. Get $2,020 bills and $8,050 bills. Number three, be home by one o'clock. Do not let the phone be used. Number four, refer to me in all communications as Ubermensch, and I shall refer to you as a lowly camel. Number five, I am more than human. We don't need to talk about it. I just want you to know it. Number six, I want to thank you for, I want you to thank me. There we go. For allowing you to bear witness to the incredible transformation that is my own intellectual and moral ascension. Number seven. Uh, what do you think of King Oliver's uh, new Riverside Blues track? It's simply divine, right? Well, I think it's a cat's pajamas, fella. Makes me want to fucking murder. Can you not hear it? Can you not hear the murder in the jazz? Uh, he only actually, of course, listed those first three instructions. Uh, once these two called the parents of whoever they took, then they planned to provide them with, you know, further instructions. Now they just had to go kidnap and kill somebody. The next day, May 21st, 1924, Leopold and Loeb get another rental car on Michigan Avenue, same place he rented from before, a green Willie's Night under the same alias of Morton D. Ballard. That afternoon, they slowly drive around the streets to the south side of Chicago, looking for little Armand. Five o'clock, after driving around Kenwood for two hours, they're ready to abandon the crime for another day. Unbeknownst to them, Armand's chauffeur had picked him up from the private Harvard school for boys, uh, or it wasn't for boys, Harvard school for a dentist appointment, so Armand wasn't uh, walking home from school as expected. They did find another kid on the list that they had made of acceptable murder victims, Johnny Levinson, but there were too many witnesses around Johnny, so they bailed on kidnapping him. Then as Leopold drove north along Ellis Avenue, Loeb, sitting in the rear passenger seat, suddenly saw his cousin, Bobby Franks, walking south on the opposite side of the road. Bobby was the 14-year-old son of a wealthy Chicago match manufacturer, or watch manufacturer, Jacob Franks. Also Loeb's second cousin and uh, an across-the-street neighbor who had played tennis on the Loeb, uh, you know, at the Loeb residence several times. Loeb knew they had found their victim. He tapped Leopold on the shoulder, indicated for him to slow down. Fucking idiot. Here's one of their first huge mistakes, maybe the biggest one. Well, next to the, next to the one of just needlessly killing somebody. 
Like if you're trying to commit the perfect crime, the perfect murder, why would you pick somebody who lives across the street? Like, why would you pick somebody, you know, a fucking neighbor, the police, when this person turns up missing or dead, they're going to for sure talk to people that this kid knew like other fucking kids in the same neighborhood. Man, geniuses when it came to academic studies, but not street smart. These two, not at all. Uh, Leopold turned the car in a circle, driving slowly down Ellis Avenue, gradually pulling alongside Bobby. Now, Hey Bob, uh, Dick Loeb shouted from the rear window. The boy turned slightly to see the dark green Willie's night sedan car produced between 1914, 1933 by the Willie's Overland company of Toledo, Ohio. Stopped by the curb. Uh, Loeb leaned forward into the front passenger seat to open the front door. Hey, Bob, I'll I'll give you a ride, Loeb said. The boy shook his head no, though. He was almost home and said, no, I can walk. And now these two masterminds should have left, but they didn't. They wanted to kill someone so badly. They were so hopped up on the jazz. Just couldn't stop. Uh, Come on in this car. I want to talk to you about the tennis racket you had yesterday. I want to get one for my brother, Loeb now insisted. Bobby moved a bit closer now. He was standing by the side of the car. Loeb looked at him through the open window. Loeb could have grabbed him, pulled him inside, but instead continued talking, hoping to persuade the boy to climb into the front seat. Bobby stepped onto the running board and then did slide himself into the front seat, sitting right next to Leopold. Loeb gestured towards his companion. You know Leopold, don't you? Bobby glanced sideways, shook his head now. He didn't recognize him. No, he said. You don't mind us uh, taking you around the block, Loeb asked. Certainly not. Bobby turned around in the seat to face Loeb. He smiled at his cousin with an open, innocent grin, ready to banter about his success in yesterday's tennis game. Like any 14-year-old boy, the car accelerated down Ellis Avenue. As it passed 49th Street, Loeb felt on the car seat beside him for that stupid fucking chisel, that modified chisel, right? Uh, Again, they taped off the blade so that uh, he could use the blunt end, the handle as some form of club. I guess maybe they didn't want to draw too much attention to themselves by just buying a club or again, just overthinking things. Loeb feels the makeshift club in his hand now. He grasps it firmly. At 50th Street, Leopold turns the car left. As it makes the turn, Bobby looks away from Loeb, glances towards the front of the car. When he does so, Loeb reaches over the seat, grabs the surprise boy from behind with his left hand, covering Bobby's mouth to stop him from crying out. Right, They're in public. People could hear around this. Immediately following this action, almost simultaneously, he brings the chisel club down hard, smashing it into the back of the boy's skull. He pounds the chisel into Bobby's skull with as much force as possible, but it does not render him unconscious. Bobby has now twisted halfway around in the seat, facing Loeb, desperately raising his arms to protect himself from further blows, but it won't help. Loeb smashes the chisel down two more times into Bobby's forehead. Still, Bobby struggles. So Dick Loeb swings again with all his might and the fourth blow splits open a large hole in this poor boy's forehead. Blood from the wound is now spilling everywhere, spreading across the seat, splashing onto Leopold's trousers, spilling onto the floor. Bobby is still conscious and struggling. Killing not nearly as easy as Loeb or Leopold had expected it to be. Was not at all like it was in pulp detective novels. They're making more mistakes now. This is fucking messy. This is very messy. Now Loeb reaches down, grabs Bobby, pulls him suddenly upwards over the front seat into the back of the car, jams a rag down this boy's throat, stuffing it down as far as possible. Blood's getting everywhere, tears off a large strip of adhesive tape as he wrestles around with Bobby and tapes his mouth shut. Leopold, meanwhile, still driving around Chicago near where they live in broad fucking daylight during all this. Bobby's moaning and crying now stops. Once his body goes limp, Loeb relaxes his grip on him and Bobby's now dead lifeless body slips off his lap and lays crumpled at his feet with the body on the floorboard out of view these two geniuses now drive to the do drop in a restaurant in hammond indiana just a few miles outside of chicago city limits 
uh, where Nate Dog, not covered in too much blood, I guess, grabs some hot dogs and some root beers. After that, you know, they have their hot dogs, they have their root beers, then ride around aimlessly until it gets dark enough for them to feel like they can uh, quietly dispose of the body. After dark, they drive to a predetermined swampy dumping ground near Wolf Lake in uh, Hammond, Indiana, 25 miles south of downtown Chicago. There, they remove and discard Bobby Frank's clothes, conceal the body in a large culvert, kind of, along the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks north of the lake. They do not bury the fucking body way out in the woods. Nope. Just kind of drop it off in a culvert right next to some railroad tracks, not far from the road, easily visible to anybody who uh, wants to walk by. To obscure the body's identity, they pour hydrochloric acid on uh, Bobby's face, his genitals to disguise what he looked like, hide the fact that he had been circumcised, and then they leave. Uh, they don't even put his, yeah, again, his body, they don't even put his body deep into the culvert. Just very lazy. Unbeknownst to them, a pair of eyeglasses falls from Leopold's jacket onto the muddy grounds near the body. These ubermenches have left a very incriminating piece of evidence in the crime scene. By the time these two make it back to Chicago, word is, of course, spread that Bobby Franks is missing. When they uh, are back in the Hyde Park neighborhood area close to the university, Richard pulls up to a drugstore on 57th Street. It's almost 10 o'clock. Inside the store, the clerk directs them to the payphone booth at the rear. They'll uh, find a phone book there. Dick Loeb searches for the Frank's address, finds it, reads it off to Nathan, uh, writes it down, who writes it down in very careful, precise handwriting to mask his own penmanship on the front of an envelope. The clerk sells the uh, postage for the letter, six two-cent stamps, and to ensure that it will reach its destination the next morning. They also purchase a special delivery stamp, which Nathan attaches to the upper right-hand corner of the envelope. The nearest mailbox is two blocks away across the street from the Hyde Park Post Office on 55th. Nathan lifts the latch of the box, slips in the previously typed ransom letter inside that uh, narrow gap. It will arrive at the Frank's house at 8 o'clock the next morning. And now the pair drive to Dick Loeb's house. Richard gathers together Bobby's clothes, trousers, shirt, underpants, jacket, wraps them in the blanket they had draped over his dead body when they drove around, and takes all this into the house, where they sneak into the basement where the home's furnace is still burning. Like an actual, has a fire furnace at this time. Uh, Richard can see the flames flickering behind the grate. They unwrap the blanket, feed Bobby's clothes to the fire, and then Nathan notices that they have lost one of Bobby's socks. A sock with a distinctive black and white checkered pattern. Shit, they have no idea where it is. Another mistake. The blanket itself is too saturated with blood to safely burn in the furnace without giving off a pungent odor, so they hide that in the garden now behind the greenhouse. And again, not smart. They don't bury it. Just kind of toss it back there. Just a fucking bloody blanket. Uh, Now they still need to call the Frank's household to tell the boy's father that they've abducted Bobby and that he should expect a letter in the morning with ransom details. The Walgreens drugstore at the corner of 47th and Woodland Avenue is still open at 1030 in the evening, so they drive on over. They can see the clerk to the window as they approach, alone in the store, leaning across the front of the counter, reading a newspaper spread out before him. Nathan purchases a telephone slug at the counter and walks with Richard by his side towards the rear of the store, picks up the phone's receiver, reads the number to the operator from a piece of paper in Richard's hand. It's a tight squeeze for the two of them inside this booth. A woman's voice comes on the line and explains that Jacob Franks had left the house about an hour previously. There was no telling when he will return. Uh, He now waited for the maid uh, to put Flora Franks on the line, Bobby's mother. Uh, When a second woman speaks, Nathan speaks rapidly yet clearly, intent on wasting as little time as possible. She says, this is Mr. George Johnson. Your boy has been kidnapped. We have him, and you need not worry. He is safe. But don't try to trace this call. We must have money. We will let you know tomorrow what we want. We are kidnappers, and we mean business. If you refuse us what we want or try to report us to the police, we will kill the boy. Then he hung up, and the two returned to Leopold's house. 
Nathan's father is still awake when they arrive at Greenwood Avenue. Greets him, shakes uh, Richard's hand uh, warmly, notices nothing wrong with the two. They don't seem upset, not bothered at all by what they've done. But these two still think they're a couple of geniuses. They think that if, uh, you know, in their own ubermensch morality, if they've decided that what they've done is not wrong, then it is not wrong. They have nothing to feel bad about. Nathan's father, also named Nathan, thought that uh, Dick Loeb was an excellent influence on his son before the truth about all this came out. He believed that Nate could have done a lot worse in his choice of friends. Uh, the three guys now sit around just talking in the living room for a bit, shooting the shit. Uh, and after a while, then, you know, Nate Sr. has to go to bed. And then Junior and uh, fucking Dick Loeb remain. Uh, they head downstairs playing a card game called Casino. Soon it's time for Richard to return home. Nathan offers him a, a ride in his Red Willie's night. Not sure why he didn't want to drive the rental car. Maybe he didn't want to drive a car with blood all over the seat. And then now Dick fucks up again. Uh, as the car drives south on Greenwood Avenue, Dick feels the chisel in his jacket pocket. In the excitement, he had forgotten about the fucking murder weapon. <laughs> just forgot he had it. And now just casually flings it, just fucking yeets it out the car window. Lands on the sidewalk with a loud clatter. Someone hears that clatter. As the car continues south, a night watchman, Bernard Hunt, steps out from some shadows. Hunt picks up the modified chisel, examines it curiously, right? Someone is taped with the blade. That's weird. And on the handle, he can make out traces of dried blood. A little bit suspicious. As he puts the chisel in his pocket, Hunt also looks up in time to see Nate's car driving away, a red car with distinctive disc wheels and nickel bumpers he'll be able to identify later. He watches it turn right towards Ellis Avenue. The next day, Leopold and Loeb have a little bit of a stain to deal with. Uh, A bunch of poor Bobby Frank's blood is, again, all over the rental car. Oh, and then, and if I uh, did mention before, this this guy, this uh, watchman does hand that chisel over to the police. Uh, but yes, the next day, Leopold and Loeb have a little bit of a stain to deal with. A bunch of poor Bobby Franks' blood is again all over the rental car. And uh, another huge fuck up occurs. They're at Nathan's house trying to clean it up when the uh, Leopold family chauffeur, Sven England, old Sven, walks over and notices the boys cleaning the same dark green Willie's night car that the boys have been driving yesterday. And he hadn't heard that Nate Dog had bought a new car. So whose car was this? He wonders, right? Richards. Uh, Nate still has a red Willie's night. Uh, Nate told Sven when he asked what they were up to that they had spilled some red wine all over the car. Uh-huh. Not suspicious at all. I'm sure people guzzled Cabernet Sauvignon in cars uh, back then all the time. Also, Sven literally can't remember ever seeing Nathan perform manual labor before this incident. Like literally ever. Like he, I mean, he would say later, he was just like, oh, this is weird. Like, why is he, why, why isn't he having someone else clean something? He's always had other people do these things. What's he up to really? Next, the pair take a break from cleaning the car. They're able to get most of the visible blood stain removed and just think, ah, fuck it, close enough. <laughs> Geniuses. And uh, keep moving the ransom plan along. They now drive downtown with a series of typed out notes that would direct Mr. Franks along a very convoluted treasure hunt of sorts. More like a, a reverse treasure hunt. Since he'll be losing fortune at the end. Uh, Nathan goes over the plan one more time with Dick as they drive north along Greenwood Avenue. They're going to first telephone Jacob Franks at his home, directing him to the Ross Drugstore, 1465 East 63rd Street, the corner of 63rd and Blackstone. Franks was then to wait at the rear of the store by the telephone booth for a phone call for further instructions. Then, while Jacob Franks waits at the drugstore, he and Richard will telephone Franks from a second drugstore, instructing him to walk to the railroad station one block west of the first drugstore to catch a train that came down from Chicago. The train left at 3 o'clock from Central Station, heading towards Philadelphia. To set shit up for the final leg of the ransom instructions, uh, they then go to the Central Train Station where Dick Loeb disguises himself with a hat, glasses, and black overcoat. 
He buys a ticket to Philly, gets on the train so he can hide a note on the train with the final instructions. The note instructs Mr. Franks to move to the back of the train. After he gets the note, watch out the window to the east until he sees a red brick factory with the name Champion painted on it outside in big white letters. After passing the factory, he was to just fucking fling his box of cash out the window to the east. Uh, where our two geniuses will be hiding and waiting to scoop it up, head back home, toast to each other's Uberman success, and then celebrate by listening to some fucking evil jazz while eating a, a newborn baby or some shit. Ah! Thank you, Dark Lord, for giving me music to fuel my dastardly deeds. Uh, for real now. While Loeb is hiding a note in the train, Leopold is working on setting the ransom sequence in motion. From a payphone, he calls a taxi to the Franks' house. The Franks had by now received that typewritten ransom note that had been mailed the night before, telling them to wait by the phone, you know, for further instructions. Don't talk to the police. Don't take any other calls. Next, Nate Dogg calls the Franks, gives them a full set of instructions for the ransom payment. Bobby's father, Jacob, was told that a taxi was heading his way, that he was to tell the driver to take him to a payphone located at the pharmacy at 1465 East 63rd. Kidnappers plan to call that payphone, right? As I said, order Franks to head to the other location to receive news, fucking board the fucking train. Uh, then Jacob Franks would have been directed, right, to look for that message stored in the box in the last train car, the message that Loeb has just planted, right, the message that would direct him to throw the money out the window like I talked about earlier. If all went according to plan, Leopold and Loeb would be hiding near the railroad by the factory with Champion written on the outside, get their money, blah, 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 but it wouldn't go down like that. As Leopold and Loeb drove downtown around 2.30 to place a call to the pharmacy payphone, they passed by a newsstand. On the front page of the uh, news for the day is the headline that says, Boy's body found in swamp. Fuck. It's Tommy Franks. All right, his body has been found in less than 24 hours. The perfect murder! Loeb wants to abandon the ransom plan now, but Leopold insists they go through with it. So they continue the drugstore, use the payphone there to call the other drugstore's payphone, and get no answer. Why? Because Jacob Franks wasn't able to fucking memorize the exact address of the drugstore. He was not in a good state of mind when he answered the phone. His son had just been kidnapped. He shook up. These idiots did not give their instructions, uh, you know, uh, or uh, they they gave it too quickly and did not repeat the drugstore address. Did not make sure he had written down the drugstore address before just hanging up like a couple of fucking morons. Pretty important if you're trying to ransom someone to make sure that they actually understand how to give you the ransom money. And now since he can't make it to the (laughs) the right drugstore, he can't receive the next bit of info that will lead him to the train station. So it's, you know, it's over. Leopold and Loeb now have to abandon their ransom plan. The train has literally left the station. Uh, They now return the rental car, a rental car that still has a blood stain in it, but you know, fuck it. They kind of tried to get it out and then take a taxi back to Kenwood. Both head to their respective homes. Uh, where they walk in to see family members reading the day's papers and talking about the murder of their neighbor. Again, why would you kill someone who lives in your own neighborhood if you're trying to get a, a perfect murder? The body has not only been found, a passerby uh, you know, spotted the body, notified the police, but people are already assuming it's the body of Bobby Franks, right? thought to be kidnapped the night before. And now the Franks family in all this confusion, they hear terrible news. They hear the news that it is their son that has been murdered. Unbeknownst to Leopold and Loeb, while the ransom plan was falling apart, Bobby's uncle had been dispatched to the morgue and had identified the body. And it is Bobby. Sorry if I've said Tommy once or twice before. Uh, By the time Leopold and Loeb made it home, the Franks family knew that their son had been killed. And that will be the headline the next day. So this perfect crime has really started to unravel less than 24 hours after the act itself. 
Now focused on covering their crime up, Leopold and Loeb hide the typewriter by tossing it in the nearby harbor. Then they burn the blanket they had used to move the body by dousing it in gasoline and just setting it on fire in an alleyway. Seems like they could have found a less public way to destroy it. Uh, And then they went about their lives as usual. You know, for the most part, other than going over uh, plans of how to respond to any questions the police might ask them. Right? I bet they're rehearsing. Uh, The next day, they read in the paper that a pair of eyeglasses has been recovered from the crime scene, right? Leopold's eyeglasses. Whoops. The Chicago police have launched an extensive investigation. Rewards are being offered for the information. Uh, Investigators initially focus on teachers at Bobby's private school, the Harvard school. While Dick Loeb goes about his daily routine quietly, Leopold is speaking freely to police and reporters, offering theories to anyone who will listen. You know, like a master criminal does. He's so cocky. Uh, Leopold even told James Mulroy, a former classmate at the University of Chicago and now a journalist at the Chicago Daily News, when asked if Bobby was as good of an athlete as he had heard, that he never liked Bobby. And he actually added, this is what I mentioned at the start of the show, if I were to murder anybody, uh, he would he was just the little cocky son of a bitch that I would pick. That's his quote. If I were to murder anybody, he was just the cocky little son of a bitch that I would pick. What a moron, just asking to get caught. Back to the pair of eyeglasses now. The prescription and frame were common enough, but they were fitted with a very unusual hinge. When police looked into it, they found that only three customers in Chicago had purchased that hinge, and one of them was Nathan Leopold. Right, they're fucking done now. Police go to question him about it. Leopold tells him that his glasses uh, might have fallen out of his pocket on a, 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 a bird watching, a bird watching trip at that spot the previous weekend. How weird that he would be uh, bird watching uh, right where his uh, neighbor would end up dead. Huh. So the police, you know, they're not buying this. Then on May 29th, 1924, eight days after the murder of Bobby, not Tommy Franks, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb are officially brought in for questioning. Uh, They told police that on the night of the murder, uh, in an alibi these two geniuses had carefully constructed over the past few days, uh, on the night Bobby vanished, they picked up two women in Chicago using Leopold's car, then dropped them off sometime later near a golf course without learning their last names. And that alibi would crumble almost immediately. Because Leopold's chauffeur told police he was repairing Leopold's car on the very night in question, uh, the night they claimed to be picking up these women. These two fucking geniuses hadn't bothered to look into the actual status of Leopold's car the important night. It was in the garage the entire day. This uh, chauffeur's wife confirmed that the car in question was parked in the Leopold garage on the night of the murders. This is bad. This is real bad. Once confronted with that information, just two days later on May 31st, Richard, not so tricky dick lobe, Ubermensch, crumbles he confesses he throws fellow ubermensch nate dog under the bus hard he claims that leopold had planned everything had killed franks in the backseat of the car while Loeb drove once now confronted with that story ubermensch leopold uh you know <laughs> quickly confesses and says no Loeb was the murderer he was the driver these two genius supermen had already turned on one another an investigator speaking to leopold now asks now nathan i just want you to go on in your own way and tell us the story from the beginning tell us the whole thing And Leopold replied, when we planned a general thing of this sort, uh, it was as long ago as last November, I guess, at least. And we started on the process of how to get the money, which was the most difficult problem. We had several dozen different plans, all of which were not so good for one reason or another. Uh, Yeah, dude, fucking none of these plans were good. The whole ransom angle, really stupid, far from perfect. When he got to how they chose their victim, he said, I waited in the car there while Dick went through the alley to a place where he could either command a view of Harvard school or if he saw any likely looking children, he could start playing with them. (laughs) Very inconspicuous. 
right? Uh, after some time, I should say around three, several of the groups of boys playing in the afternoon with the so-called tutors had left for a vacant lot on 49th and Drexel. We followed them up there, I having made a stop at home for my field glasses in the meantime, around three or 3.15. And we parked on the opposite side of Drexel Boulevard and watched these children at play. We also sneaked around on foot to the front behind a lot where we could observe without being seen. We also had another group of boys spotted in a lot just across the street from my home, 48th and Greenwood. Why, why would you ever look across the street from your house? We waited around until a quarter of five when the gangs broke up, but one of the boys had run down the alley, as we thought merely in play and would be back. Apparently, they had greatly disappointed us. We missed our opportunity of following any of them home. We then went down Lake Park to 41st Avenue, where an acquaintance of Richard Loeb's had a son who might be expected home at that time. Uh... They had greatly disappointed us. What a creepy thing to say. All we wanted to do was murder them. And instead, they greatly disappointed us. Uh, Both Leopold and Loeb admitted to the investigators that they were driven by their thrill-seeking ubermensch delusions and an aspiration to commit a perfect crime to prove that they were so smart, so advanced, they could kill with impunity. Fucking dumb. They must be quickly feeling now. Uh, Neither claimed to have looked forward to the killing, but Leopold did admit interest in learning what it would feel like to be a murderer. Uh, He said he was disappointed to note that he felt the same as ever. Hello, sociopath. Well, now the state's attorney, Robert E. Crow, is pretty sure that this is going to be an open and shut case for these two for the death penalty, right? He knew that these two dipshits were going to be executed and soon. He even boasted to the press that it would be the most complete case ever presented to a grand or pettit jury, and the defendants would certainly hang. He had a mountain of evidence. Leopold and Loeb had confessed. They had even shown the police crucial evidence that the police didn't have when they first started talking. They told them where the fucking typewriter was that they dumped, and that linked them to the crime even more conclusively, these criminal masterminds. Uh, But Crow didn't really fully take into account just how much money Leopold and Loeb had on their side. Their families hired Clarence Darrow as a defense attorney, arguably the best, most famous lawyer in America at the time. For a retainer, Albert Loeb paid Darrow $70,000, equivalent to uh, $1.2 million today. Rumored that Mr. Loeb uh, gave Darrow an additional million dollars at that time to spend on the defense, equivalent of about $17 million today. This guy was a fucking monster in the courtroom, uh, a known name in the le- in legal circles still to this day. By 1894, Darrow had achieved notoriety within Cook County as a clever speaker, an astute lawyer, and a champion of the weak and defenseless. A year later, he would become the most famous lawyer in the country when he successfully defended socialist labor leader Eugene Debs against conspiracy charges that grew out of a strike against the Pullman Palace Car Company. Robert E. Crow, the state's attorney, could attest firsthand to Darrow's skills. In 1923, Darrow had humiliated him in the corruption trial of Fred London, a prominent Republican politician. And now it was a rematch. Attorney versus attorney. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Head to the Cook County Fairgrounds to watch the match of the century. One state prosecutor with a losing record but an airtight case takes on Clarence. He fought the law and he won Darrow. And two complete idiots. Everyone knows they're guilty. Glasses, a found murder weapon, a crushed alibi, and more. But is Jazz really to blame? Are their heads the wrong shapes? Who gets hanged? Who walks free? We'll sell you the whole seat, but you only need the edge. Darrow took the case because he was such a staunch opponent of capital punishment. He knew these two were guilty. He just didn't want them to hang for it. On July 21st, 1924, Chicago's Cook County Courthouse would begin its session with John R. Caver- Caverly presiding as judge. 
Caverly had been born in England and was a devout Catholic who had paid for his legal education by once carrying water and steel mills uh, for 87 cents a day. He was a blue-collar, no-nonsense dude who was not going to suffer foolish, entitled Bratswell. One Chicago city attorney, he had broken up a ring of personal injury lawyers who had swindled the city out of millions of dollars. He was rewarded with a municipal court judgeship and later promoted to trial court. And now he was part of what was being called in the papers as the trial of the century. Everyone wondered, how would Leopold and Lowe plead? Guilty or not guilty? Most people, the media, the media included, speculated that the two would plead not guilty by reason of insanity. But Clarence Darrow knew that a jury trial, which is what would come from a not guilty plea, would almost certainly lead to a conviction and the death penalty for his idiotic and very unlikable and not insane clients. So he convinces his clients to plead guilty. As a rational fucking person, he made it clear to them and their families that, uh, you know, with the evidence these two shitheads had left all over the place, there was not a chance in hell that they were going to walk away from all of this and resume their lives. There was no trips to Europe in their near future, no Harvard. They were not ubermenches. Uh, his plan was to try and convince, you know, Judge Caverly to give Leopold and Loeb life sentences. That was best case scenario. Then maybe they would get paroled in their middle ages. Not a great fate, but better than being hanged for certain in a jury trial. Leopold and Loeb were guilty of murdering Bobby Franks, Darrow told Caverly, but he wanted the judge to consider three mitigating factors in determining their punishment, their age, their guilty plea, and their mental condition. And now the ensuing trial of the century technically would not be a trial at all. It would be a very long sentencing hearing. And so during July and August of 1924, both sides presented their evidence. Robert E. Crow, representing the prosecution, presents over a hundred witnesses, documented details of the crime, showing how methodically Leopold and Loeb had planned out the murder of Bobby Franks, right? They get the guy who found the fucking chisel, they get the rental car company to talk about the blood in the car, people at the drugstores, all sorts of shit. He emphasized how lucid, how thought out their planning was. Emphasized this was not the behavior of insane people, it was the behavior of cruel, cold-blooded, conscienceless killers. The defense, meanwhile, called in a variety of psychiatrists and doctors and other so-called experts, to prove that Leopold and Loeb were not able to see clearly how their actions had been wrong and did not deserve the death penalty. This was all that weird head shape shit I mentioned earlier, like droopy eyelids and such, asymmetrical faces, too much jazz. The three major defense psychiatrists were dubbed the three wise men from the East by the prosecutor in the press. They were William Allenson White, director of St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the Insane in Washington, D.C., William Healy, one-time director of the Psychopathic Clinic in Chicago, uh, Bernard Gleck, formerly the alienist, as forensic psychiatrists were then called, at Sing Sing Prison in New York, and in 1924, a staff member at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, William Allenson White was the one who told the court that both Leopold and Loeb had experienced trauma at an early age at the hands of their governesses. According to other staff who worked for the family, there was the belief that Sweetie, real name Mat Matilda Wands, had begun having a sexual relationship with Nathan Leopold when he was just 12. That she had also allegedly had sex with Nathan's older brother, Samuel, when he was 17. Nathan's mom was an invalid, bedridden due to an undiagnosed illness and apparently unsupervised while dad was off and away at work. The Leopold boys had become unnaturally close to Matilda. Meanwhile, Loeb had allegedly grown up under a very uh, strict disciplinary regimen. So exacting that in order to escape punishment, he had no other re recourse. He had to lie to his governess. And so, in Dr. White's account, at least, uh, he had been set on a path of criminality. Dr. White would say, Emily Struthers, this is Loeb's governess, pushed him tremendously in his schoolwork. Oh, how dare she? Was apparently very ambitious with regard to him 
and stimulated and pushed him ahead. Ugh. Further than he would have gone without that sort of stimulus. <laughs> Sounds like a fucking good parental figure. Uh, he says, for example, in college, he lied about his marks. He lied about all sorts of things. He lied to Leopold, his comrade, about his attendance in college. While his mark marks were on the uh, whole pretty good, he made them a good deal better. He was continually building up all sorts of artificial situations until he himself says that he found it difficult to distinguish between what was true and what was not true. My God. Okay, the uh, uh, the being molested shit with Leopold. Yeah, that's bad. Uh, can he blame the murder of Bobby Franks on you know being molested? No, get the fuck out of here. That's absurd. And this is more absurd. This is just so pathetic. Right, right. He was put on the path of being a murderer because his governor expected a lot out of this gifted child. What the fuck? This, this doctor's a clown. Uh, Dr. White continues. He considered himself the master criminal mind of the control of the controlling a large and controlling a large band of criminals whom he directed. Even at times he thought of himself as being so sick as to be confined to bed, but brilliant and capable of mind that the underworld came to him and sought his advice and asked for his directions. And so he directed this whole group of criminal conspirators from his sickbed. In a well-rounded, well-integrated, well-knit personality, emotion, and intelligence go hand in hand. Dickie is in a stage which, if it goes on further, is capable of developing that kind of very malignant splitting. Uh-huh. Good job with the word salad there, doctor. Trying to pull one over on the judge with a bunch of psychobabble, pity party bullshit. Leopold had also been traumatized, the defense is a psychiatrist argued, having been sexually intimate with his governor at an early age, right? Uh, yeah, as I said. And, uh, and also pushed hard to be academically superior, right? So of course he snapped. About Leopold, White would give this analysis saying, Nathan's pathology had begun in early childhood. His classmates at the Douglas School had teased him relentlessly. His estrangement from his peers had begun when he was seven or eight years old and had continued throughout his time at the Harvard School and into the present. Nathan had always been a lonely, unhappy child, ever the outsider. And to protect himself from further pain and hurt, he retreated into an inner world where emotion counted for nothing and intellect was all. Nathan, like Richard, was trapped inside a world of fantasy. Nathan imagined himself as a slave, subservient yet physically powerful, who had saved the life of his king and had thereby earned the king's gratitude. It was an elaborate fantasy played out in innumerable ways, yet it always allowed Nathan to imagine himself as superior. Uh-huh. Uh, when the two of them came together, White said it was like fireworks. Loeb had suggested the murder had taken, uh, and Loeb had suggested the murder and taken the initiative. But when he faltered, Leopold was always there to back him up. In addition, Darrow uh, called a series of expert witnesses who offered a catalog of Leopold's and Loeb's physical abnormalities, which they really didn't have any. Uh, one witness, though, testified that they had dysfunctional uh, endocrine glands. Of course they killed. They're endocrine glands. Or it's just so fucking dysfunctional. God, it's so hard to just do what I want in life with these fucking glands dysfunctioning all the time. Uh, all the while, the uh, media coverage of this trial or sentencing hearing, rather, is fascinating millions. So intense was the public interest in the mental processes of the killers that publisher William Randolph Hearst, searching for a scoop, offered to pay noted psychiatrist Sigmund Freud half a million dollars plus transportation costs from Europe to examine the accused killers. And Freud actually turned him down. Said he was too ill to travel. All right. Soon it was time for both sides to sum up their cases. Crow would uh, talk about how the two boys were anti-Christian deviants who indulged in sex with one another and represented the worst kinds of criminal behavior known to man. He would say, Leopold has proclaimed since he was 11 years of age that there is no God. The fool in his heart hath said there is no God. I wonder now, Nathan, whether you think there is God or not. I wonder whether you think it is pure accident 
that this disciple of Nietzschean philosophy dropped his glasses, or whether it was an act of divine providence to visit upon your miserable carcasses the wrath of God and the enforcement of the laws of the state of Illinois. In all probability, the present mental disease of these two defendants would disappear very rapidly if the causes for its existence were removed. If the glasses had never been found, if the state's attorney had not fastened the crime upon these two defendants, Nathan Leopold would be over in Paris or some other of the gay capitals of Europe indulging his unnatural lust with the 5,000 he had wrung from Jacob Franks. And the case closes, and we are just as much in the dark as ever as to what these four crimes of Loeb's were, because the doctors concluded that legally and forensically it was inadvisable to question him about it. And then I asked you, when Darrow talks about tricks, who are the tricksters in this case? Well, these four crimes he's referring to uh, come from a passage in the so-called Bowman-Holbert Report, a secret report prepared by the defense, but leaked to the newspapers uh, that had caught Crow's attention. I guess Richard had mentioned four crimes denoted by the letters A, B, C, and D, two psychiatrists. What were those crimes, Crow wondered. No one knew. The defense psychiatrist had decided not to ask Richard about them. Crow believed that Loeb was referring to something embarrassing enough for Nathan Leopold to be able to blackmail uh, Richard Loeb into a sexual relationship, which is total speculation, you know, on his part. Okay. So Crow continues, what strange hold did this man Leopold have on Loeb? Why did he submit himself to the unnatural practices of Leopold? I will tell you, Your Honor, and I think I will demonstrate it beyond a preadventure of a doubt that these four episodes, that these four crimes were known to Leopold, and he blackmailed Loeb. He threatened Loeb with exposure if he did not submit to him, and Loeb had to go along with Leopold. And Leopold was willing to go along with Loeb because he could use his body for vile and unnatural practices such as taking your honor, his throbbing, hot, hard father-daddy love stick, and pushing it in and out, and in and out, your honor, in and out, and in and out, while listening to jazz, while drinking gin, in and out, in and out, your honor, while reading Nietzsche, in and out, in and out of his butthole, and his mouth, and the palm of his closed hand, your honor, and maybe also rubbing it against the soles of his feet, your honor, and maybe on his back as well, your honor, and perhaps some sword fighting went on, or maybe some docking or sounding, perhaps, your honor. I added the Your Honor stuff, of course. Uh, Crow actually finished with uh, jumping ahead a bit in his closing argument. Your Honor, it may be hardly fair to the court. I'm wishing he actually did all that stuff now. Your Honor, it may be hardly fair to the court. I'm aware that I've helped to place a serious burden upon your shoulders. And at that, I have always meant to be your friend, but this was not an act of friendship. I know perfectly well that where responsibility is divided by 12, it is easy to say, away with him. Obviously referring to 12 jurors right? You can share the moral responsibility for the verdict. And he says, but your honor, if these boys hang, you must do it. There can be no division of responsibility here. You can never explain that the rest overpowered you. It must be by your deliberate, cool, premeditated act without a chance to shift responsibility. Crow would make some comments later that would uh, be even more pointed about how the court needed to kill these two young men. It was the obviously morally righteous thing to do. And Judge Caverly uh, did not like these comments. Uh, Darrow would now make a speech that would be called the finest speech of his career. Darrow's impassioned 12-hour-long speech, split over two days, focused on the inhumane methods and punishments of the American justice system and the youth and immaturity of his clients. He delivered it while the temperature in the courtroom reached 97 degrees. Here's a little part of it. It is a really good speech. This terrible crime was inherent in his organism, and it came from some ancestor. Is any blame attached because somebody took Nietzsche's philosophy seriously and fashioned his life upon it? 
It is hardly fair to hang a 19-year-old boy for the philosophy that was taught him at the university. We read of killing 100,000 men in a day. During World War I, we read about it and we rejoice in it. If it was the other fellows who were killed, we were fed on flesh and drank blood, even down to the prattling babe. I need not tell you how many upright, honorable young boys have come into this court charged with murder. Some saved and some sent to their death. Boys who fought in this war and learned to place a cheap value on human life. You know it and I know it. These boys were brought up in it. It will take 50 years to wipe it out of the human heart, if ever. I know this, that after the Civil War in 1865, crimes of this sort increased marvelously. No one needs to tell me that crime has no cause. It has a de- as it has as definite a cause as any other disease. And I know that out of the hatred and bitterness of the Civil War, crime increased as America had never seen before. I know that Europe is going through the same experience today. I know it has followed every war. And I know it has influenced these boys so that life was not the same to them as it would have been if the world had not been made red with blood. Your honor knows that in this very court, crimes of violence have increased growing out of the war, not necessarily by those who fought, but by those that learned that blood was cheap and human life was cheap. And if the state could take it lightly, why not the boy? Has the court any right to consider anything but these two boys? The state says that your honor has a right to consider the welfare of the community as you have, if the welfare of the community would be benefited by taking these lives well and good. I think it would work evil that no one could measure. Has your honor a right to consider the families of these defendants? I have been sorry and I am sorry for the bereavement of Mr. and Mrs. Franks, for those broken ties that cannot be healed. All I can hope and wish is that some good may come from it all. But as compared with the families of Leopold and Loeb, the Franks are to be envied and everyone knows it. Here is Leopold's father, and this boy was the pride of his life. He watched him and he cared for him. He worked for him. The boy was brilliant and accomplished. He educated him, and he thought that fame and position awaited him, as it should have awaited. It is a hard thing for a father to see his life's hopes crumble into dust. And Loeb's the same. Here are the faithful uncle and brother who have watched here day by day, while Dickie's father and his mother are too ill to stand this terrific strain, and shall be waiting for a message which means more to them than it can mean to you or me. Shall these be taken into account in this general bereavement? The easy thing and the popular thing to do is to hang my clients. I know it. Men and women who do not think will applaud. The cruel and thoughtless will approve. It will be easy today. But in Chicago and reaching out over the length and breadth of the land, more and more fathers and mothers, the humane, the kind, and the hopeful, who are gaining and understanding and asking questions not only about these poor boys, but about their own, these will join in no acclaim with the death of my clients. These would ask that the shedding of blood be stopped and that the normal feelings of man resume their sway. Your honor stands between the past and the future. You may hang these boys. You may hang them by the neck until they are dead. But in doing so, you will turn your face toward the past. In doing it, you are making it harder for every other boy who in ignorance and darkness must grope his way through the mazes which only childhood knows. In doing it, you will make it harder for unborn children. You may save them and make it easier for every child that sometime may stand where these boys stand. You will make it easier for every human being with an aspiration and a vision and a hope and a fate. I am pleading for the future. I am pleading for a time when hatred and cruelty will not control the hearts of men, when we can learn by reason and judgment and understanding and faith that all life is worth saving and that mercy is the highest attribute of man. And that's a good speech. That's a very good speech. Uh, If I'm that judge, I do still hang those two motherfuckers. But it is a good speech. 
maybe feeling that the judge was now sympathetic to Darrow, uh, Robert Crow now said to the media that Darrow had sought a friendly judge who would buy into his shabby arguments. And that remark made it back to Caverly, who didn't care for it. For the first time during the hearing, one reporter wrote that the judge showed a flash of passion and called the comment a cowardly and dastardly attack on the integrity of this court, one intending to intimidate him. Crow apologized hastily, uh, hastily, but his innuendo may have, you know, harmed his case greatly. Now, if the judge rules in favor of hanging these two, it could be seen by some as him going against his own true judgment to prove to Crow that he's not partial to Darrow, like he's worried about Crow's approval of him or something, worried about proving the integrity of the court. Uh, the judge also probably was less than pleased with Crow's indelicate observation that, quote, if a jury returned a verdict without death punishment, every person in the community would feel that the verdict was founded on corruption. So basically saying that if the judge doesn't hang these two, he's corrupt. Uh, but whatever the reason, uh, September 10th, 1924, Judge John R. Caverly hands down his sentence. Both Leopold and Loeb will not get the death penalty. They get life imprisonment for the murder and an additional 99 years for the kidnapping. In his ruling, the judge echoed Darrow's emphasis on the burden he had been made to bear. Then he offered his reason for choosing life imprisonment instead of death by hanging for Leopold and Loeb, saying, It would have been the path of least resistance to impose the extreme penalty of the law. In choosing imprisonment instead of death, the court is moved chiefly by the consideration of the age of the defendants, boys of 18 and 19 years. The court thinks it is within his province to decline to impose the sentence of death on persons who are not of full age. This determination appears to be in accordance with the progress of criminal law all over the world and with the dictates of enlightened humanity. More than that, it seems to be in accordance with the precedents hitherto observed in this state. Uh, despite his son not being hanged, the trial itself seems to have taken quite a toll on Dick Loeb's father. A little over a month later, he dies at the age of 56 of heart failure. Leopold and Loeb initially are both uh, sent to Joliet Prison in Joliet, Illinois. Although they are kept apart as much as possible, the two do manage to see each other in the prison and maintain a friendship. wonder how many times they, uh, you know, said something to the effect of, what the fuck were we thinking? Leopold was transferred to Statesville Penitentiary in 1931 after serving seven years. Loeb will soon be transferred there as well, once uh, once reunited. Uh, They'll continue to be friends and will also expand the prison school system. Uh, adding a high school and junior college curriculum. Then one of these ubermenches will meet someone else who really doesn't care about the rules and morality of uh, of the camels of American society around them. January 28th, 1936, Richard Loeb is viciously attacked by fellow inmate James Day with a straight razor in the shower. Dies soon afterwards in the prison hospital at the age of only 30. Day claimed that Loeb had assaulted him, but Day was unharmed while Loeb sustained more than 50 wounds, including defensive wounds on his arms and hands, right? Wonder how much Wonder how much fucking jazz Day listened to before being sent to prison, enough to permanently ruin his brain, clearly. Uh, Loeb's throat had been slashed from behind. News accounts suggested that Loeb had propositioned Day sexually. On February 19th, 1936, in a column printed in the Syracuse Journal, Mark Hellinger wrote, I must tell you of the line that came to me from an unknown correspondent in Chicago. This anonymous contributor said he had the absolute lowdown on the recent slaying of Dickie Loeb. Seems that Loeb made a slight mistake in grammar. He ended a sentence in a proposition. And that is some classic 1920s humor for you and some homophobia. Uh, In his later autobiography, Life Plus 99 Years, Nathan Leopold ridiculed Day's claim that Loeb had attempted to sexually assault him. 
This was echoed by the prison's Catholic chaplain, a confidant of Loeb's, who said that it was more likely that Day attacked Loeb after Loeb had rebuffed his sexual advances. Whatever happened, one half of the Superman duo is now gone, and Nathan continues to reform himself in prison now. Uh, Despite suffering from near-constant depression, yeah, I fucking bet he was depressed. What a life he threw away. He had everything. Uh, He becomes a model prisoner, makes many significant contributions to improving conditions at Stateville Penitentiary. Uh, These included reorganizing the prison library, revamping the schooling system, teaching its students and volunteer work uh, in the prison hospital. 1944, Leopold even volunteered for a malaria study at the prison and was deliberately inoculated with malaria pathogens and then subjected to several experimental treatments. Uh, He later wrote that all his good work in prison and after his release was an effort to compensate for his terrible, disgusting act. And he would give an answer to a parole board as to why he and Loeb killed Bobby Franks. I don't love it, but this is what he would say. He said, I've been trying desperately to fathom the situation. I will never quit trying. I admired Richard Loeb extravagantly, beyond all bounds. I literally lived and died on his approval and disapproval. He he didn't literally, that's not how that word works. I would have done anything he asked, even when I knew he was wrong, even when I was revolted by what he suggested, and he wanted to do this terrible thing. Why, I cannot be sure. Certainly it was mad, irrational. Maybe there was some kind of juvenile protest, an overwhelming desire to show that he could do it and get away with it. Leopold added, the only thing that comes out of my thinking that even bears on it is that at 19, my growth and development were unnatural. My thinking was of a grown person, but I had the feelings of an undeveloped infant. Uh-huh. Uh, pretty gross. I find that pretty gross. Almost always the same with these fuckers, the blame game, right? Blame the dead guy who can't contradict you. It was his fault. It was his lead I was following. Then maybe, you know, maybe a lot of that was true. Or maybe he just still couldn't admit to himself that he did what he did because he fucking wanted to. Right? Well, he wasn't the one who swung the chisel club thing. Uh, He did do a lot of the planning, right? Helped put this murder together for months. He had his own mind. He didn't have to follow the others, you know, leading. He enjoyed a little hot dog and root beer right after watching a 14-year-old he'd help pick up. He savagely beaten and suffocated and killed. Right? He shot the shit with his dad just hours after the killing. Seemed fine. Oh, but he didn't he didn't want to do this. He was he was revolted. I don't buy that for a fucking second. Uh, in the early 1950s, author Meyer Levin, a former classmate of Nate Dogg's at the University of Chicago, requested Leopold's cooperation in writing a novel based on the Franks murder. Leopold responded that he did not wish a story told in fictionalized form, but offered Levin a chance to contribute to his own memoir, which was in progress. Well, Levin, he didn't want to do that. So he went ahead with his book alone. Despite Leopold's express objections, and the novel would be titled Compulsion and would be published in 1956. Levin portrayed Leopold under the pseudonym Judd Steiner as a brilliant but deeply disturbed teenager, psychologically driven to kill because of his troubled childhood and an obsession with Loeb. Leopold uh, later wrote that reading Levin's book made him physically sick. More than once, I had to lay the book down and wait for the nausea to subside. I felt as I suppose a man would feel if he were exposed, stark naked, under a strong spotlight before a large audience. Sounds like Levin's fictional portrayal must have been pretty accurate. Uh, 1959, the book would be made into a film starring Orson Welles, playing a fictionalized version fictionalized version of Clarence Darrow. Welles will win the Best Actor Award at that year's Cannes Film Festival, and that film holds a perfect critical rating of 100% on Rotten Tomatoes as I record this. Uh, backing up a year, Leopold's autobiography, Life Plus 99 Years, was published in 1958 as a part of his campaign to win parole. In beginning his account with the immediate aftermath of the crime, he engendered widespread widespread criticism, excuse me, for a deliberate refusal expressly stated in the book to recount his childhood or to describe any details of the murder. 
He was also accused of writing a book solely as a means of rehabilitating his public image. And for better or for worse, it worked. After 33 years and numerous unsuccessful petitions, Leopold was paroled in March 1958. By this time, he was in poor health, suffering from rheumatism, diabetes, kidney trouble, and a heart ailment. Uh, mercilessly hounded by the press, he had been forbidden as a condition of parole to deal with the media. Leopold vomited incessantly as he was driven away from the prison towards Chicago. A newspaper reporter following Leopold's vehicle wrote, Nathan Leopold walked out of the Stateville prison Thursday into the wonderful world of free men and promptly got sick. Soon after his release, the Brethren Service Commission, a church of the Brethren Affiliated Program, which is an anti-Baptist or Anabaptist Christian denomination, accepted him as a medical technician at his hospital in Puerto Rico. He expressed his appreciation in a letter, uh, news in a later news article saying, to me, the Brethren Service Commission offered the job, the home, and the sponsorship without which a man cannot be paroled. But it gave me so much more than that. The companionship, the acceptance, the love, which would have rendered a violation of parole almost impossible. Later in 1958, he attempted to set up the Leopold Foundation to be funded by royalties from life plus 99 years to, quote, aid emotionally disturbed, retarded, or delinquent youths. I know, old-timey lingo. Uh, But the state of Illinois voided his foundation's charter, however, on grounds that it violated the terms of his parole. After that, Leopold moved to uh, Santurce, Puerto Rico, really nice neighborhood in San Juan, and married a widowed florist named Trudy Feldman. Went back to school, earned a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico, then taught classes there, became a researcher in the social service program of Puerto Rico's Department of Health, worked for an urban renewal and housing agency, did research on leprosy at the University of Puerto Rico's School of Medicine, and uh, like he had been as a young man, resumed his interest in birds, active in the Natural History Society of Puerto Rico, traveling throughout the island to observe its bird life. 1963, he published Checklists of Birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And then... On August 29th, 1971, 13 and a half years after his release from prison at the age of 66, this motherfucker kidnaps another kid, 13-year-old, this time little Eddie Benitez, and beats him to death with a fucking hammer. No perfect crime the second time around either. He was quickly apprehended and again uh, did confess. Why did he do it? Well, he just couldn't stop listening to that jazz, baby. Oh, the jazz made him kill. The jazz made him kill that boy. Can't you hear the murder? Can't you hear it? No, he didn't kill again. But how mad were you for a second? If you believe me. I know many of you are very wise to my silly tricks. And I actually, uh, and I actually meant to play a different one that I really want you to hear now. Little, little Josephine Baker. Maybe, maybe that's what drove him. To, to diabolical ends that I've already told you didn't happen. Uh, we played this in another set before. Loose guys. Josephine Baker back in the Josephine Baker suck. Has nothing to do with the story, but I just want to hear her voice for a second. Just as blue as could be. That old record sound. Every day is a cloudy day for me. Uh, no, Nathan Leopold died of a diabetes-related heart attack, August 29th, 1971, at the age of 66. Now, both Supermen were gone. And uh, this one, I do have to admit, he did seem to have been re- rehabilitated by the end. He did do a lot of good with his life after serving over 30 years in prison for helping senselessly, you know, take the life of someone else who might have also done a lot of good with his life had he not been savagely, you know, fucking murdered. And now let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. The strange murder of young Bobby, not Tommy Franks, a kid who lived around Kenwood, not Kentwood, uh, you know, killed by the 
by the also young Leopold and Love. What a weird and tragic story. Uh, before I recap it, and we head to the takeaways and Time Sucker updates. First, uh, if you care about yourself, your children, other people's children, society not crumbling into wanton, dystopian, constant murder and lawlessness, you really do need to hear the following PSA. Hey, I'm sure you've heard of dementia jasmania. I'm sure you know what, what jazz is. That's, that's bad. You might even know that jazz is dangerous. But do you really understand just how bad and dangerous jazz is? Please hear a few eye-opening testimonials from some former jazz lovers. Hey, my name's uh, my name's Johnny. I was a good kid growing up, honor roll student, uh, Boy Scout. Played a lot of Scrabble with uh, with my Grams. But then one day, uh, Grams let me have a sip of her gin and um, let me listen to some old Coltrane. And uh, six months later, I killed that bitch. I cut her fucking head off and shit in her skull. I didn't know what was happening. It turns out I had a dementia jasmania. Dementia jasmania can ruin your life in so many ways. Let's hear from someone else. Um, yeah, uh, hey, it's me, um, David Childress, uh, former host of Mamie's Giants on ANG. And um, uh, I was once a promising student at the University of Montana. <laughs> Go Chris. I had a bright future ahead of me. Um, but then a, a roommate uh, played some Miles Davis for me. And the next thing I knew, I was dropping out and dedicating my life to ancient alien theories and cryptid hunting. I have to keep myself distracted at all times uh, with a rich fantasy life or I'll kill everyone I love. I have dementia jasmania. And now just, just one more. It's me, Antonio Banderas. I spice a meatball. I used to be a Spanish. I used to be married to Melanie Griffith. A big time Hollywood actor. But now I run an Italian beast on a male strip club. I somehow became an Italian stereotype. Mamma mia, bada bing, Maserati Bugatti spaghetti. All because I have a dementia jasmania. Dementia jasmania is real. And it's ruining more lives every day. If you or someone you know has a jazz problem, please call 1-800-GIN-JAZZ. That's 1-800-GIN-JAZZ. The Roaring Twenties are over, but Dementia Jasmania is not. And hey, what, what, kind of, what kind of music is playing behind this PSA? Oh my God. What is that, what is that chord progression? Is it jazz? Is it jazz? Damn you, Dementia Jasmania! God, I hope a lot of people hear that message. You know, for all of our sakes. Whew. Whew. Heavy stuff. Whew. Uh, back to Leopold and Loeb and poor murdered Bobby, not Tommy Franks now. All three of them had so much going for them, you know? Three lives ruined by fucking jazz. I mean, a senseless act. Uh, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb were two Jewish teens from Chicago who seemed to have it all. Both graduated from college as teens, on track to get advanced degrees, so much fucking money and support. Even without their education, right? They would have had every advantage that money can provide. Families loaded. Instead of doing something good with all these advantages, they decided to murder a young boy and attempt to be uh, at committing the perfect crime, a crime that no one would be able to pin on them. And then they'd be able to live out the thrill of knowing they'd got away with something while seeing their dirty deeds splashed across newspapers as they went on to live simply fabulous lives, eating a lot of peach melba. But that wouldn't happen because when it came to these crimes, these two geniuses were idiots. 
well, this crime. Police investigators quickly discovered Bobby's very poorly hidden body and the curious pair of custom eyeglasses next to it. These eyeglasses quickly led them to Nathan Leopold. And when Leopold and Loeb were brought in for questioning, they told a very shitty alibi story. And when police questioned about uh, them about that, uh, Loeb confessed, tried to pin it all on Leopold, then Leopold confessed, tried to pin it all on Loeb. And if they wouldn't have had, you know, if they wouldn't have confessed, well, the carelessly tossed, still bloody murder weapon would have still been turned into the police. The bloody rental car and more would have turned up and these two would have been hanged for sure had they went to trial. Hanged after a real quick trial. Their attempt at a perfect crime came crumbling down, exposing the murder plot that was not the work of criminal masterminds, but of two rich, arrogant, too smart for their own good young men who thought the law did not apply to them. Right? They uh, they hired a uh, very expensive, famous attorney. Their families did Clarence Darrow, who would defend them, kind of. He would get them to plead guilty in an attempt to avoid their executions by the electric chair, or excuse me, not by the electric chair, by hanging. And then in their sentencing hearings, uh, Darrow would call in over 100 witnesses and psychologists, some experts, some trash pseudoscience wackadoodles to testify that Leopold and Loeb should not be executed. Darrow's defense would culminate in him delivering a 12-hour-long speech over two days in extreme heat in the courtroom, talking about how young and immature Leopold and Loeb were, how executing them would be inhumane. Man, two fucking days. I could not be a judge. I could not listen to anyone talk to me that long about technical defense strategy shit. But Judge Caverly could and did and the defense present, uh, defense's presentation did work. Leopold and Loeb were given life sentences with an extra 99 years for their kidnapping instead of being hanged. And while Richard Loeb, uh, you know, would be savagely murdered in prison himself later, can't say I feel sorry for him after what he did to Bobby Franks, Nathan Leopold would actually earn a release from prison after a little over three decades. And he seemed to uh, do a decent amount of good in the world after noticeably improving the prisons he was held in. After a huge early fuck-up, he put that brilliant mind to use for good, a mind clearly not destined for a life of crime. So begrudgingly, I have to say, I respect what he did for the most part after 1924. The story of Leopold and Loeb inspired crime and thriller writers for decades. I hope this presentation entertained you today. Even if your IQ is 160 or above, it was still pretty hard to get away with murder in 1924 and it's a lot harder now. So maybe don't try. Let's look now at today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, on May 21st, 1924, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb murdered Richard Loeb's second cousin, a 14-year-old named Bobby Franks. Influenced by a misunderstanding of Nietzsche's Ubermensch philosophical concept, the two had begun to think that they were above the law and wanted to create a crime that would generate a lot of media attention and prove that they could get away with murder. Number two, two important pieces of forensic evidence would prove that Leopold and Loeb murdered Bobby Franks, a typewriter they had stolen that had distinctive sticky keys that matched the ransom letters, and the hinge from Leopold's glasses, which uh, had only been purchased by three people in Chicago. And then there were so many other major mistakes. Their alibi quickly disproven as soon as Leopold's chauffeur told police that the car they supposedly had been driving in uh, the night in question was in the shop, and they quickly turned on one another and confessed after just a few hours of interrogation. Long way from the perfect crime. Number three, so many strange theories were floated in the press in 1924 as to why Leopold and Loeb murdered Bobby. From speculations about the decadence of the jazz age to weird theories about Leopold and Loeb's physical features to the idea that their wealth and privilege had turned them into sociopaths, everyone was speculating as to why two teenagers with all the opportunity in the world would do such a thing. Number four, uh, Richard Loeb died in prison in 1936, but Nathan Leopold went on to get paroled in 1958, became a decent member of society, lived out the rest of his days in Puerto Rico, working at the university, returning to his old love of birds, and probably all of that was due 
to him no longer listening to jazz. Number five, new info. Just a year after he defended Leopold and Loeb, Clarence Darrow would be involved in an even more historical and memorable trial. In 1925, the Tennessee legislature passed the Butler Law, which forbade the teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution in any public school or university. Other southern states followed suit. The ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, now led the charge of evolution supporters and offered to fund the legal defense of any Tennessee teacher willing to fight the law in court. The man who accepted the challenge was John T. Scopes, a science teacher and football coach in Dayton, Tennessee. In the spring of 1925, he walked into his classroom and read a part of a a chapter on the evolution of humankind and Darwin's theory of natural selection and then was fucking arrested for doing so. And a trial date was soon set. Holy mother of Gilead under his eye. May the Lord open. May science be shunned. Let us begin a new dark ages. Clarence Darrow would represent John T. Scopes and the trial would turn into a media circus. When the case was opened on July 14th, journalists from across the land descended upon the mountain hamlet of Dayton. Less than 2,000 people living there at the time. Preachers and fortune seekers alike filling the streets. Entrepreneurs selling everything from food to Bibles to stuffed monkeys. Uh, the trial became the first ever in America to be broadcast on radio. Scopes himself played a rather small role in the case. The trial was reduced to a verbal contest between Darrow and William Jennings William Jennings Bryan, the prosecution. When Judge John Ralston refused to admit expert testimony on the validity of evolutionary theory, uh, Darrow lost his best defense by far. Unfucking believable Not going to let experts talk about the validity of evolution. Darrow was down, but far from defeated. <laughs> I know I don't uh, agree with him on the moral basis of a death penalty argument, but I think this dude was a very intelligent man. Uh, Darrow decided that if he was not permitted to validate Darwin, his best shot was to attack the literal interpretation of the Bible itself. The climax of the trial came when Darrow asked Brian, the prosecutor, to take a stand as an expert on the Bible, and Brian agreed to do so. Darrow then fucking logic hammered Brian with a tough series of questions on his strict acceptance of several biblical stories from the creation of Eve, from Adam's rib to the swallowing of Jonah by a whale. The following expert excerpt is one famous exchange in the trial about the flood in the Bible's book of Genesis. Darrow says, but what do you think that the Bible itself says? Do you know how the estimate of the year of the, that the flood occurred uh, was arrived at? Brian says, I never made a calculation. A calculation from what? I could not say. From the generations of man. I would not want to say that. What do you think? I could not say. From the generations of man? I would not want to say that. What do you think? I, I do not think about things I don't think about. And Darrow asks, do you think about things you do think about? And Brian says, well, sometimes. And then cue some laughter in the court. Uh, Despite the hilarity of some of these uh, nonsensical courtroom exchanges, Judge Ralston would rule that Brian's testimony would not be allowed to stand on record. Uh, It was clear to Darrow that all was lost in his courtroom. He had no defense angles. In order to appeal the case to a higher court, he asked the jury to find his client guilty. And on July 21st, 1925, the court did. The jury did side with the law. Clearly, Scopes was in violation of a Tennessee statute by teaching that humans evolved from apes and he was fined $100 and released. But the battle that played out before the nation proved a, a small moral victory for many supporters of evolutionary theory being, uh, you know, being able to be taught, thanks to Clarence Darrow, who showed just how strange a literal interpretation of the Bible can be. In the trial's aftermath, Tennessee prevented the teaching of evolution in the classroom, though, all the way until the Butler Act's repeal in 1967. Additionally, the state legislatures of Mississippi and Arkansas passed their own bans on the teaching of evolution in 1926 and 1928, respectively, which also lasted for several decades. 
Darrow died at the age of 80 in 1938, so he never got to see his most famous loss avenged. I hope he died uh, at least knowing he had made people think about something they clearly weren't you know, used to thinking about uh, when they banned the teaching of evolution from public classrooms. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Leopold and Loeb, the perfect murder has been sucked. Deep apologies to all the Kenwood folk for having your name you know, pronounced wrong a few times with a T. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for uh, all the help making Time Suck again this week. A big thanks to my partner in crime, boss bitch and the sweetest P, Lindsay Cummins. Um, yeah, she's a, she's a fucking badass. Uh, thanks to the Suck Ranger, Tyler C, for producing direction today. To the Art Warlock, Logan Keith, for helping with production as needed. Thanks uh, also to Bit Elixir for upkeep on the Time Suck app. The Art Warlock again for creating merch at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, I do love that Antonio Banderas uh, shirt. And also, I am aware that he, uh, as I pointed out in the joke, is, uh, is Spanish, which is what makes it more ridiculous for me. <laughs> I saw some people confused about that online. And uh, yes, thanks to Logan for helping the Suck Ranger and a team managed by our social media strategist, Ryan Handelsman. Thanks to producer Sophie Evans for initial research this week, finding this topic. Also, thanks to the All-Seeing Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, for making sure Discord keeps running smooth. Everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week on Time Suck, we head to Russia and I don't mock them. Not the main characters, at least this time. We will fly with the Night Witches, Russian champions. Right, October 8th, 1941, with Stalingrad surrounded, Leningrad besieged, and the Nazis making new gains on Russian territory every day. Joseph Stalin, not my favorite person, ordered the creation of three new Air Force regiments. And the twist? The regiments would all consist from pilots to ground crew to navigators and mechanics of women. Led by Meat Sack Supreme, uh, Marina Raskova, who had undertaken a daring flight in 1938 that had made her the Russian Amelia Earhart, these young women, most of whom were between the ages of 17 and 26, would have to transform from flight hobbyists to killer soldiers. In all, there would be three regiments, the 586th Fighters Regiment, the 587th Bombers Regiment, and the 588th Night Bombers Regiment, and it would be the Night Bombers who would earn the nickname of the Night Witches. From the German soldiers, they fucking terrorized in darkness. Flying no-frills wooden planes with ill-fitting uniforms and no parachutes, most runs would happen with three planes. First two were meant to draw attention on enemy fire, third being the one that would drop the bombs, and the third plane, to avoid detection, would have to cut their engine and glide over the target quietly as possible before dropping bombs and then hoping they could restart the engines or crash and die. The night witches were extremely successful in their fight against the Nazis. The 588th regiment would uh, fly around 30,000 sorties and have 23 of their pilots awarded the title of hero of the Soviet union. And they would definitely help change the tide of the war against the Nazis. The incredible badass story of the night witches next week on time suck. Hail Lucifina. I'm sure she was there guiding and protecting them. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Starting off with a a very important dad watch announcement from rightfully concerned sucker Tom Simpson, who writes, Hey Dan, loyal space lizard and frequent patron of Dahmer's Wings and Things. (laughs) I forgot about it. I was listening to the DC Snipers episode while at work. I got to the part talking about uh, John's childhood abuse. At one point, you mentioned John being told by a relative to hold a spark plug on a mower while they yanked the cord and it shocked the shit out of him. Well, fun fact. My father-in-law did that exact same thing to me while trying to help me fix my snowblower. 
He thought it was hilarious as I screamed in pain. (laughs) Hearing this and remembering all of your very serious and eye-opening dad watch PSAs has brought to light some very intriguing facts about my father-in-law. My father-in-law does live near a large river. He does go on a lot of fishing trips to Canada for extended periods of time. My brother-in-law does own a funeral home. Like with your dad, I also don't know where he was during a lot of the crazy murders that took place in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Lastly, and by far the most disturbing and haunting fact to me, during a recent campfire at his home, we all sat down to make s'mores and enjoy a nice night with the family. My father-in-law pulls out a package of hot dogs. Does he offer anyone a hot dog? Nope. This man proceeds to eat a fucking raw hot dog while maintaining eye contact with me. When I confronted him about eating a fucking raw hot dog, he laughed and then finished the juice in the package. I got up and walked out. Surely I'm not crazy, right? Would a sane, non-murderous person do that? Should I be worried? Could he be a serial killer? Is it possible he's hiding bodies in the river by his house? Where is he really going when he says he's in Canada on all those long fishing trips? In all seriousness, my father-in-law is a great man. He has taught me a lot and I do love him. But that hot dog thing is fucked up. My wife and I love the show. We are huge fans of your stand-up at uh, one of your shows in Madison a few years ago. You actually signed one of your greeting cards to my mom. Oh, you know what? I'm going to be going back to Madison, I think, I think sometime this year. We're locking down some dates. Uh, and the off chance you read this on the show, it would mean a lot if you could shout out to my amazing wife, Rose. She's an incredible social worker, and I'm so fucking proud of her and all the hard work she puts in day after day. She keeps me sane, listens to all my crazy rants, puts up with my weird jokes. She's the best thing to ever happen to me, and I also love her very, very much. Thank you, Dan, and to the Bad Magic team for all that you do. Hail Nimrod, Tom Simpson. Well, Tom, uh, I love you, man. You sound like a good dude. And your father-in-law sounds hilarious. I love the weird hot dog stare down. The hot dog juice slurp. Yeah, that was a bit intense. Creepy. I hope, though, if I have a son-in-law someday, I do the exact same kind of creepy shit to him. And Rose, good on you for fighting the good fight. Hail Lucifina. Social work is such important work. And now for a cool World War II update from a cool Alaska sack, Kristen Warman who writes, Damn it, Dan, I listened excitedly to the Devastation in Asia episode, hoping that you would touch on the Japanese occupation of the Aleutian Islands in Alaska in the early 1940s. As an Alaskan and as an army veteran, this part of the war holds a particular fascination for me. It's the only time since the 1800s that a foreign military has occupied U.S. soil. On Alaska, where Dutch Harbor is, uh, Kiska, Atu Islands all suffered attacks by the Japanese and Kiska and Atu were occupied until July of 1943. Routing the Japanese from uh, Atu was a brutal battle and they escaped from Kiska under the cover of bad weather. We still bombed the hell out of the island and craters from the bombs and in some cases unexploded bombs are still visible today. It's a fascinating part of my state's history and interestingly, since the area is so remote, remnants of the Japanese occupation, including two mini-subs, multiple ships, anti-aircraft guns, and a network of caves carved into the hills all over Kiska Harbor still exist to this day. In the caves, artifacts like shoes, blankets, wiring for lights, and metal pots still remain. Today, the islands are part of the Alaska Maritime National Wildlife Refuge, which is how I got my once, actually twice, in a lifetime chance to visit these special places. Uh, Kiska Harbor excuse me, is especially haunting with the hulks of wrecked ships in the harbor and the anti-aircraft guns poking up like spikes from the hills above the harbor. Also worth mentioning is that at the time of the invasion, thousands of Alaska Native peoples were evacuated from their remote communities and moved to what amounted to little more than prison colonies around the state. They were often forced to leave with just what they could carry and destroy their homes and communities to prevent invaders from utilizing the resources. The families that survived the disease and overcrowding of the evacuation camps had very little to return to. 
Uh, so damn it, Dan, how dare you not cover my super specific special interest facet of World War II that literally almost no one else knows about? For real, I grew up here and didn't learn about it. Now, I'm not mad, just disappointed. And also, I want to apologize for my long email. Thanks for the last three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. P.S. One of my Here's one of my favorite shots of Kiska, the ship I worked on. The uh, Tekla is visible as a speck in the harbor and a photo of me next to Kiska Harbor appears so that you know I'm not completely spouting bullshit. Interesting reads, if you as if you don't have enough homework, might be the Thousand Mile War or the Forgotten War, Kristen Warren. Well, Kristen, thank you for those pictures. Uh, it was cool to see what you saw. And yeah, I did not know much about this at all. I, I knew the Japanese occupied some of the islands of the Aleutian chain, but I didn't know that actual fighting took place on one of the islands between American and Japanese forces. And holy shit, you know, thousands died in this fighting. Uh, looking into it now, a bunch of brutal, literal hand-to-hand fighting took place during the Battle of Atu, May of 1943. Um, yeah, what a cool little piece of history. And I, that's so cool that there's actually still items from the Japanese uh, occupiers in those caves, right? You can visit a World War II battlefield that is on American soil. So very cool update. Uh, now for a personal connection to a murderer revealed from super sucker, Selvi Ursoy. Selvi writes, hey, Dan, before I get into your meandering connection to Patrick Kearney, I wanted to let you know how much I love your podcast, how much I've been enjoying listening to it while I nurse my baby. My baby girl, Robin, was born this past October. And as you may know, newborns nurse pretty much around the clock for the first several months of life. I've had you blast into my ear holes for at least some of the three plus hours a day I spend with my baby girl sucking on my teat while listening to such gems as the Casanova Killer, uh, the Bloody Harps, Cannibal Cop. That was a weird one to experience while my baby uh, made little hungry, somewhat demonic grunts on my boob. (laughs) Uh, Herb uh, Baumeister and Joseph Mengele. Anywho, my husband and I live in the Dell Air with a D, not a B, neighborhood of LA, right between El Segundo, Hawthorne, Inglewood, and Manhattan Beach and very close to Redondo. As you went through the Patrick Kearney suck, you kept mentioning places so close to home it was eerie. But when you said the address of Patrick Kearney's house, you blew my mind. Patrick Kearney's house is only a few doors down from my husband's aunt and uncle's house on Robinson. We must have driven past his house tons of times since we visit his aunt and uncle pretty often. We will definitely ask them if they know anything about the serial killer next time we see them. Now, where do you come in? Well, my husband and I are good friends with your former Playboy Morning Show co-worker, Alex Callens. He was the best man in our wedding. I loved Alex. Alex, yeah, great guy. So uh, you used to work with Alex Callens. He's a good friend with us. We have an aunt, uncle on Robinson. Aunt, uncle live only a few doors down from Patrick Kearney's old house. There's your connection. Hope you found it somewhat interesting. Selby. Well, thank you, Selby. That is fucking wild to have close relatives a few doors down from where a, uh, a serial killer lived, a very prolific one who did sometimes kill in that home. And uh, yes, I love Alex. Excuse me. Uh, tell him I feel bad for having to uh, back out of his very cool TV project last year. I, uh, I really wanted to do it, but the suck, stand up, scared to death, family, leave almost no time for anything else. Uh, I hope you found someone better than me for the part he had in mind for me, which was this fucking crazy magician guy, which is cool. Okay, now for some sweet fan fiction. We're going to end on from a sweet sack, Libby Thompson. Uh, very late in sharing this, Libby, but better late than never. Libby writes, Hello, Dan, Master the Suck, and all hail the prophet of Nimrod. I'm writing to share with you a fan fiction story that I wrote. I noticed that there haven't been very many stories involving my favorite characters, Pootie and Juju, recently. So I decided to write one myself. One of my favorite episodes was 275, the uh, Appalachian Crypt- Cryptids episode, and just thought that uh, Pootie and Juju would be a natural fit for that episode. Now, I do have to apologize for the story being a little late as it's a Christmas story, but I've never been very good with deadlines. Anyway, here it is. Enjoy. 
Pootie and Juju Meet the Squonk. A Christmas story. Uh, it was December, and our heroes, Pootie and Juju, were visiting relatives in uh, Paducahville in the Allegheny Mountains of northern Pennsylvania for the holidays. They had just left Aunt Titi's house and were walking through the woods to Granny Wheezy's house. As it was December, the sun was setting early, and recent heavy snows had obscured the trail that they were supposed to be following. With Pootie in the lead, it was no surprise that they quickly became lost. I don't know why we have to go to Granny Weezy's house anyway, Pootie said. She kind of creeps me out. She got that one eye that's always looking off somewhere else, and I always just want to know what the hell it's looking at. And then there's her voice. Good Lord, she sounds like she got carried away while flating a frog and done swallowed it whole. Well, you know she's been smoking that corncob pipe since she was knee-high to a June bug, Judy said. Why do you think they call her Weezy anyway? It ain't her name. Her name's Florence. Huh, I never knowed that. You also don't know where we are, do you? Stop nagging me. Excuse me, Juju snapped, stopping still and glaring daggers at Pootie. Oh, quit looking at me like that. It's not like you know where we are either. I'm not the one leading. Oh, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Don't you talk to me that way. I'll talk to you. Shh. Don't you shush me, Pootie said indignantly. Hush, I hear something. Listen. The two stood completely still for a moment and listened to the night. At first, they heard only the sound of the wind whispering its secrets to the trees and gently ruffling the snow. But then they heard it. The sound of crying. This was not the delicate sniffling sounds of a dainty woman weeping for a lost suitor, but the full-on blubbering sobs of someone who's lost their entire world. Cautiously following the sounds of the sobs, they found themselves approaching a boggy clearing. Much of the standing water was frozen over, but a large area of the ice was broken up, and a large creature was seated in the center of the pool, bawling loudly. It was a sort of pig-like creature with incredibly wrinkly skin that was covered with unsightly hairy warts and moles. Oh, that poor thing, he looks so miserable, Juju said softly. Yeah, probably because he's so ugly. Pootie, don't say that, it's mean. Oh, come on, that thing's so ugly, it can make an onion cry. You hush, I'm gonna go talk to him. No, don't do that, it might be contagious, and then you'll catch your death of ugly. But it was too late. Uh, Juju had already stepped into the clearing. Upon Juju approaching, the creature squealed and froze, as though, it, uh, as though if it didn't move, Juju might not notice it. Hey, buddy, what's wrong? Juju asked gently. Why are you crying? The creature didn't respond, continuing its statue ruse. Maybe it's too stupid to speak, Pootie suggested. Well, if you can speak, anything can. Hey! Don't you say Pootie, don't you pay Pootie no mind. Pootie has no manners, Juju said, glaring at Pootie, whose eyes rolled in response. Turning back to the creature, Juju asked, Why are you out here all by yourself? It's Christmas. Why aren't you with your family? Somehow the creature managed to look even more miserable. It stared down at its webbed feet in abject dejection. Don't you have a family? It shook its head, and two more large tears rolled slowly down its warty cheeks. Oh, that's terrible. Listen, Pootie and me are headed to Granny Wheezy's house. Why don't you come with us? I'm sure she won't mind. Don't invite it, Pootie whispered loudly. Where's he going to sleep? In the shed? If you don't stop tap dancing on my last nerve, you're going to be the one sleeping in the shed now. Hush. Like I said, just ignore him. He's an ignorant and ill-bred. After a little more gentle coaxing, Juju was able to convince the creature to join them in their journey to Granny Wheezy's house. The creature indicated that it knew where they were and could even show them the way to the house. As the trio continued on their way, with the creature now in the lead, Pootie sidled up to Juju and said softly, You sure Granny Weezy's going to even let that thing in the house? I don't see why not. She's been living in the house all by herself ever since her own coon dog shithead died. She's probably lonely too. Yeah, but come on. Even you have to admit this thing is pretty ugly. Yeah, Juju agreed reluctantly. But then again, so was Pop-Pop Skeeter. That man was so ugly, when he was born, Satan died of fright. And she married him. Oh yeah, that is true. The end. And I assume they all had a fantastic holiday. Well done, Libby. Thanks for uh, bringing Pootie and Juju back and expanding on their little slice of the suckers.
That was a that w- that would have been a good episode to drop them in. Pootie and Juju meet the squonk. Forgot about that strange, strange Appalachian cryptid. Not too little or too diddle, Libby. Just perfect. Uh, thanks everyone for sending in these messages. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Please do not kill any random people to prove that you're an ubermensch this week. That's not how it works. And careful listening to jazz, too. If it gets too dark, too murderous, turn it off, turn this back on, and keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. Kill everyone. Kill everyone you love. Let the jazz into your heart. Feel the deadly rhythms. Imagine the devil is dancing. Kill. Kill for the jazz. Take everything for the jazz. Drink some gin. Do it. Do it. Join me on the dark side of jazz. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?